0: Everybody, we're back and it hasn't been a gazillion months since you heard from us. So I'm super excited about this. My name is Amanda Reyes and you're listening to the Made for TV Mayhem show like you didn't know what was playing on your iPod right now, but just in case and um, I'm here with one of our regular co-hosts uh, Nate could not make it this time because his life is just ridiculously busy despite not being able to leave his house very much. Um, He's doing lots of wonderful things with his story continues. And if you listen to that podcast, you'll be aware of how crazy they've been. But I am here with Dan and we do have a special guest uh, to sort of fill in that spot that that Nate is um, kind of leaving the big hole in our hearts with. And we have uh, this great guest. So let's just go ahead and introduce Dan first and then and then we'll introduce our guest. So hey, Dan, what's up?
1: Uh, not not much. I you know we it hasn't been a gazillion years since our last episode. But for the life of me, I can't remember what we talked about on our last episode. Eh, the high school USA. What was it? I don't. even remember <laughs> Oh my gosh!
0: That. Yeah, that was forever ago. We talked about once upon a time in Hollywood. Crawl
1: space. That's
0: right. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Crawl space yes, was like okay. number two. Um, yeah. So like. Oh, that's
1: right. Yes. One thing. That was like four years ago.
0: Yeah. One <laughs> thing I want to say about um, once upon a time in Hollywood was that was us kind of diverging from our normal path. And we got a lot of feedback on that one. Really positive. More feedback we than we've ever had for any other episode we've done. So um, we're going to start doing little episodes like that. And we have some stuff planned to talk about things that correlate with television but not, might not have been made for television. And we're pretty excited about that. And Thank you, everybody, for listening and for supporting that episode yes, because yes. it was actually really important to me. That movie means a lot to me, and I think it's saying something really important. And I think um, talking about these things the way Quentin Tarantino embraces television was something that I just love to do. So thank you everybody for listening and I just cut Dan off. So tell me how you've been, Dan.
1: Oh, I've been okay, you know, as 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 well as any of us can be right now, you know, just um writing and and podcasting and 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 watching Aaron Spelling movies. Boom, there you go.
0: Sounds pretty <laughs> good to me. Um <laughs> Okay, and so we are we are joined here by our special guest, his name is John Larkin. You may have heard him because he's on the Screaming Queens podcast, which is basically where horror goes homo. And um, it's a lot
2: of fun.
0: And he's I'm also. That.
2: I'm so stealing that.
0: <laughs> I, th- I actually took that from Camp. Flood, so if, if Buzz is listening, I had to take it, uh, yeah. but but it is it is kind of what you're doing, and you're bringing a, a really interesting perspective into the horror world, which I love, the conversations are always really good, and aside mm-hmm. from, we can talk about your podcast here in a second, but aside from that, you also write for a soap opera in the UK called Hollyoaks, and that made you... Yes extra perfect for this episode because somebody actually <laughs> requested that we talk Ooh. about Aaron Spelling which was great. They they sent out a tweet and they tagged us both in it and they said they would love it if we had a podcast yeah. about Aaron Spelling but I think both of our schedules yes. don't allow for full podcast. So,
2: oh no, yeah. So Sadly. we're going
0: to do this special episode but go ahead and tell us a little bit about Screaming Queens.
2: So Screaming Queens, we have been around now I can't believe we've been around for four years um, wow. and we are a small little British queer horror podcast and um, I feel like most of the queer horror podcasts out there are usually sort of North American Mm. Um, so ours kind of stands out a little bit because we're British, we're not from London, we're sort of regional voices and we're not um, professional in any way, so we just sort of sit around. Talk about horror movies, I mean, we are, you know, we do structure our episodes and it's not just a free-for-all, we do sort of cover various things but, um, yeah, we tend to just enjoy it and, and it's we, we try to make it sound like a conversation that you could have with friends, so when you listen to it, you're comfortable and, you know, you know, you don't feel like you're just being forced fed a load of information or whatever, it's, it's kind of just us talking about the film, talking about um, the things that we love and usually littering it with filthy innuendos as well um, <laughs> of course but yeah we, we sort of we started out talking about queer horror and um, you know all the classics like Brides of Frankenstein and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and things like that but then we've, we've just sort of diverged we've, we've gone off ta- on tangents all the time because we we like to sort of talk about queer horror, but also just horror that we love because we feel that you know it's why limit yourself really. And usually we can find a queer reading of anything. <laughs> throw anything yeah. at us, and we'll find some we'll find some sort of subtext in there. So yeah, it's been four years we're on our. I think the episode I recorded with you, Amanda, which was last week, was our uh, 108th episode. Wow. So so we're done. We've been quite prolific, and it's still it is still just a hobby to us as well. So it's yeah, it's fun.
0: I think it's really, really important that you talked about, um, you just talk about horror because I think queer audiences have been around for a lot longer than people have recognized. I think the internet sort of yeah. brought the voices together, but there's yeah. been a huge, um, gay audience. So horror was always seen as a boys club. And so when I was growing up as a young girl and a young woman yeah. into this stuff, I felt like I was really alone. And i I think maybe you might have too. Was that your experience?
2: A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, very much Boys Club, and especially when you watch a lot of the films from the 70s and 80s as well, where there was so much emphasis on female flesh, um, and mm. boys. the boys that I knew who who loved horror were watching it for the tits mainly, the tits and the gore, and I I was also watching it for that as well, but it, it, it sort of went <laughs> towards, that that sort of added to that sort of slightly isolated feeling, so it was nice to get into my say, 20s and start to realise that you know horror does have a big queer following, you know, it's not just me, and it's you know, it's that old cliche that a queer audience can really identify with the outsider or the survivor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, that that is true, that is true. I've always found some sort of um, you know, there's always something to relate to in, in many horror films, I think, especially if you are a queer viewer or or, or a, a viewer from any sort of marginalized community. We were talking about, for example, we were talking about. Someone's watching me last week and we were talking about Adrienne Barbeau and um, we were also talking about how um, Lee finds her own sort of family and support network when she moves to L.A. in that film. And I feel like that's that's an example of how a queer audience can relate to horror because that's what queer people do. They They find their own family a lot of the time.
0: I remember that. I remember you saying that. And I always I thought that was really poignant and a very important point. So what was the impetus for you to start podcasting?
2: I literally heard it. I I heard people talking about horror movies on podcasts and thought, "Ooh, I could do that." You know, the, I I just thought, I've got yeah, I've never I've never considered myself to be a huge expert on anything, but when I think about the the stuff that I feel like I love are horror movies, soaps and Madonna, <laughs> which yes. are the three things that the three things that me and you bonded over, yes. really, Amanda so um, so I thought oh yeah I, I'd love to do a queer horror podcast And I was quite, I was quite naive when I started out Because I, I didn't really see That there were, there were that many out there But once we, we got rolling I realised that we weren't the only ones And I felt really bad as well Because there was already a queer horror podcast Called Scream Queens with a Z out there right. And I and then I started one called Screaming Queens with a Z <laughs> And it was too late by the time I advertised it and stuff, It was too late to then go and change the name It shows you how naive I was when we first started out <laughs> uh, um, But yeah there's a a mutual friend of ours chris brown who does the Mm -hmm. video nasties podcast he i heard him talking about horror and video nasties and i heard you know a voice that i recognized i heard an accent i recognized because he's from liverpool like i am and that really made me feel like oh i could do this like you know i might be able to contribute something to this so he he was really good and he he helped me get set up and told me what you know how to do it you know what software to use what mics to buy and all that kind of thing
0: Chris is amazing, and I discovered his video, Nasty's Podcast, after he completed the run of films, but... He used to kind of scare me and he's I he was really amused by that when I told him that there's because he gets so passionate You know, yeah And yeah. and <laughs> the accent just the way he sounds there's something about him that it was like wow He's really into this and I'm not sure how I feel about it And, yeah. and he's like the sweetest guy He's you most know?
2: gentle person you'll ever Yeah. Together, and his people. his
0: wife is lovely. Yeah, they're yeah. just great people. Yeah. So that's amazing <laughs> So let's talk a little bit real quick before we get started about so you also mentioned that you love soaps now you write for mm-hmm. soap and um yeah. Tell us a little bit about Hollyoaks and um um, and what you do
2: yeah so Hollyoaks is on channel four in the uk so there are the four the four big british soaps there are coronation Street, which has been running for like 60 years or more um east um which has been running since the 80s and emmerdale which has been running since i think mm. the 70s late 70s and then Hollyoaks was the is the young soap so that came about in the late 90s and that It it was aimed at a younger audience, so it was, you know, specifically a teen soap, which which was very much issue based. So, so it 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 was it was famous for two things: having a very pretty, attractive cast, and also being all about issues. So they covered lots of stuff, like you know, uh, drug abuse, rape, you know, um, lots of things that were affecting a young audience uh, at the time and still are now. And then that so that was born in the '90s, and then it went through a few different sort of eras and a few um i we called them sort of identity crises at, at the beginning because it went from being a teen soap to then suddenly because it started to be to morph into something that was a bit more a bit more um high octane so there were serial killers involved and you know all that kind of stuff and then um it went through a bit of a, a, a glamour phase just after i joined where it became a bit more aspirational and there, you know there were characters mm-hmm. who were like footballers and footballers wives and it was all all about the glamour and then and now it's sort of it's it's really found its niche in the last in the last five six years i think it's it's really found this really um but uh, there are there are three things oh no i won't go into that one but basically it, it's found the right balance of issue-based stories you can relate to stories that really uplift you but also the crazy camp dynasty-esque soap stories, which which I love, um, which I grew up on. Um, so it's it's funny because you could you can be writing an episode where where you are covering, you know, somebody who's self-harming. You could be covering someone who's suffering with bulimia or anorexia, but then you can also be covering somebody who's been kidnapped by their evil twin. You know, it's it's got it's got a real mishmash of things, but it, it really works. You know, it's got such a, a a massive following people really love it. People are really passionate about it. And I've been there for I've been writing it for 12 years.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, so... That makes it absolutely perfect for this episode because Aaron Spelling <laughs> is doing kind of all these same things and not just yeah, on yeah. his soaps um, which dealt with a lot of really interesting topics like I know you were a big fan of Morrow's Place and there's a, I'm thinking mm. of the Allison being molested by her father. Oh um, yes. Yeah yes. And, and even though there's some camp value to the way it played out in a way it also really dealt with it because it followed Allison throughout a, the rest of the show in a lot of ways and, mm. Um, mm. and that's the one thing that soaps can do that other shows can't is that it can really like have something happen and you can take the time um, to let the character either destroy herself or rebuild herself or himself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's what makes it so lovely. And Aaron Spelling did that, you know, with a lot of his stuff, but he also did these sort of things in these very nutshell sort of ways where he would take a topic and he would sort of run with it a lot of times in metaphor. Uh, with his tv movies and we're going to talk about two of those so again tonight our topic is Aaron spelling and we're talking about two really diverse tv movies and i specifically did this because a i always want to talk about the old man who cried wolf because i think it's really underrated and um one of the lesser known tv movies of that era that i can think of it Mm. that's a genre film and i was never sure what to pair with it i can never find something that quite fit it and so when we were asked to do something on Aaron Spelling, I thought, you know, let's just pair it with Charlie's Angels because Charlie's Angels is doing something also kind of under the radar political, and um, yeah. they're doing two different things, but they're equally as important, and they're and they're done in really interesting ways. And why not just pair them together and let's show everybody? If you're not aware of how diverse Aaron Spelling could be, um, hopefully you'll get a general idea about it now. And so let's just get rolling. So let me just tell you a little bit about Aaron Spelling. I pulled this from um, the obituary that was written about him in a UK paper called The Guardian. Um, It's just the first part of it. It's like a little mini biography of the beginning of his life. So Spelling was born in Dallas. He was the youngest of five children. Um, His father was named David. He was a tailor at Sears. Uh, His wife's name was Pearl. So that was Aaron Spelling's mother's name. The couple were Eastern European Jewish immigrants. And Aaron was the only Jewish kid at his high school. Uh, He was subjected to a lot of anti-Semitic bullying, And he actually had a nervous breakdown when he was a teenager, and he spent an entire year in bed. In the Second World War, he served in the Air Force as a pilot. So now he was, he's from here, Texas. He went to college at the Southern Methodist University, where he actually wrote a one-act play and directed another one by a black author, which got his father fired from his job at Sears. Um, so Spelling would later recall that his sister pleaded with uh, for her father's job, promising that Aaron would leave Dallas forever if they rehired him back. So Sears went ahead and did that, and Aaron came to Hollywood. So um, he started his career as an actor, but he, he apparently he didn't really enjoy it, or he wasn't getting the parts he wanted. And at this point, he he met Caroline Jones, who you probably best know from the Addams Family, right? Um, right, yeah. and, uh, and they were married for a period of time, which always blows my mind because they have the same cheekbones and big eyes and, um, they would have had beautiful kids had they've had them, <laughs> but she, uh, she suggested that maybe he consider writing. And so he got hooked up with the Zane Gray theater, which is where he worked with Barbara Stanwyck for the first time. They would have a long and prosperous relationship together.
3: Mm.
0: So he, and he would go on to produce, um, a TV series in 1950, I think called Johnny Ringo. Then... Um, He moved into producing when he joined forces with Danny Thomas, of all people. Now, was Danny Thomas' sitcom called Father Knows Best?
1: He was Make Room for Daddy. Make
0: Room for Daddy. I'm sorry. I always get those mixed up. So they uh, formed a production company called Thomas Spelling Productions. They were actually one of the first companies to work with the ABC movie of the week in 1970. They did several movies in that first season. Here's just a short list of them. They did the Over the Hill Gang, which was actually supposed to be the first ABC movie of the week. Um, It ended up being Seven in Darkness, but it got push back for some reason, and I don't think Aaron Spelling was very happy with that. If you look at his biography of Primetime Life, you kind of get the gist that he thought that they should have been the first ABC movie of the week, which he loved working in uh, for them. Um, he also did a pilot movie called The Monk. He did another pilot movie called The Pigeon. I think The Monk had George Maharis and Janet Leigh. Um, the Pigeon, I think, had Ricardo Montalban and Sammy Davis Jr. He did a movie called The Ballad of Andy Crocker, which starred Lee Majors about, um, and it was about a guy returning home uh, from Vietnam, and everything has kind of changed in his life, and he had to deal with that he did a movie called carter's army which i don't know much about and he did something called the love war which is this bizarre really interesting movie that we're going to cover eventually here on the show with angie dickinson and lloyd bridges about aliens who come to earth to fight each other like this like two aliens i think come down and they're having a war (laughs) um and angie dickinson is the human that gets mixed up in it and if you've ever seen brilliant yeah if you've ever seen they live you've seen The Love War. Yeah. The connections are <laughs> wow. really intense wow. in that. Um, with the
1: young Roddy Roddy Piper.
0: That's right. He should have been in The Love War. It's too bad it didn't happen. Um, so um, of the ABC Movie of the Week, Spelling wrote in his biography of Primetime Life, which I highly recommend everybody read. It's wonderful. He said, quote, oh, yeah. they wanted to show different types of characters. Not everybody had to be a Marcus Welby like hero. They wanted characters with flaws, ones who didn't have to return the following week, and they wanted to attract actors, writers, and directors who didn't want Um, to commit to a five-year series now he's always been fond of anthologies and he saw the abc movie of the week as an anthology which technically that's what it was but if you look at love boat or um fantasy island those are really anthologies when you boil them down and so he said quote it was exciting to do anthologies again it was like going back to the playhouse 90 days except abc was paying us four hundred fifty thousand dollars for 90 minutes which was a huge amount of money back then And then, of course, he produced The Mod Squad, which the ABC Movie of the Week aired right after. So um, that was a perfect night for spelling. And there was one season, I think it might have been the 71-72 season or 72-73 season, where like eight of the top ten highest rated TV movies of the week were all Aaron Spelling Productions. Wow. So, yeah, really (laughs) prolific in the TV movie world, and he doesn't get recognized for it. So... Of his political underpinnings um, that could be found in some of Spelling's work, he wrote in his biography, quote, Why was I so interested in man's inhumanity against man? Because I grew up in a neighborhood that was full of it. When you get your ass kicked every day as a child and have a nervous breakdown at nine, it tends to stick with you for a while. So wow. this was sort of something that followed him, I think. And you can see it when we start to look at some of the themes that he dealt with in his TV movies and in his TV shows. Um, you'll see it's a common thing that we see over and over again. He just does it in a way that it feels sort of like fluff on the surface. That you have to kind of deep dive into his stuff. And while yeah. he was nominated for a gazillion awards in his life, I wanted to bring up that um, he got six commendations from the um, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP for his encouragement of black actors and interracial situations. and um he won tv producer of the year or i was awarded i don't know if you win um in 1970 1971 and 1973 he was um also uh won the award for executive of the year in 1975 and twice he won the humanitarian award from the naacp in 1988 and 2001 and in 2001 it was for donating money to help a black kid with the surgery that he needed so he Amazing. did a, a bunch of really cool stuff and it might be worth noting yeah. here maybe when we get to charlie's angels It'll seem more relevant, but um, Lynn Loring was an actress who was married to Roy Thinnes, and she was in a lot of TV movies, uh, Black Noon and Horror 37,000 Feet or Two of Them, and she wanted to work behind the scenes, and so Aaron Spelling brought her into his production company. She worked for him in development. She would end up becoming the first female to run a studio. Um, I think it was MGM... UA Amazing. maybe she she ended up becoming the first female president of a studio and she got started because of Aaron Spelling so these are things to remember as we go through his films yeah, yeah. so um we're going to start here just do them chronologically so we're going to start with The Old Man Who Cried Wolf it came out in 1970 and we're I think probably after the breakdown we may want to talk about how it deals with ageism which is something that was very passionate um for Aaron Spelling and something that I'm really drawn to as I get older so let's just dive into the sure. breakdown Dan
1: All right, so uh, this one begins with um, a gentleman named Emil, uh, Emil Polska, I believe, who is going to visit a friend of his in a part of town. uh, Basically, uh, Emil lives with his son and daughter-in-law in in, like a swank neighborhood, but he's going to visit a friend of his who runs like a sweet shop uh, in – Uh, run down part of town. In fact, I believe the sweet shop is right next to a building that has like a big sign in front that says like burned and looted. And and the moment you see it, like a bunch of kids run out with stuff in their hands and look around suspiciously and run away. So it's not a great neighborhood. But he goes in to visit his friend and uh, they go in the back and they they chat for a bit. And his friend has invited him there uh, because he has $1,000 and $100 bills that he wants sent to the old country, uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. I want to say Poland. Um, But to the old country and, uh, Emil and his friend are chatting, sort of catching up. And while they're there, a a young boy, I believe, I forget his name. I want to say Louis, but I could be wrong.
3: Um,
1: yes, um, shows up and, uh, wants to buy something, but the friend says, no, no, come back later. And, uh, so Louis goes and they continue talking. Someone else shows at the shop. The friend goes in the front room and starts to get, you can hear him getting really agitated. No, I don't have the money. I don't have the money. Emil goes out there and he sees a, um, A gentleman with a rubber hose, no less, beating his friend to death. And then the guy attacks Emil and knocks him out. When Emil wakes up a little bit later, his dead friend is there. The police are there. There are all sorts of people there.
3: How do you feel?
4: Is he all right? Are you related? We're friends. Is he all right? He had a heart attack. What? What? This lady was buying some candy for Mr. Stillman, and he keeled over and died. I'm sorry.
3: There was a man here. He was hitting him. He hit me. A thousand dollars is gone. It was a big man,
4: black. No, nobody hit nobody. I was buying some candy. Mr. Stillman had a heart attack and died.
3: But I was here.
4: You heard it when he fell and you ran in from there. You fell down too, mister. You hit your head. She called me. Come on, let me help you up.
1: As he's lying there trying to figure out what's going on, this forgive me, really annoying woman says, oh, I came in to buy candy, your friend had a heart attack and when you came out to see what was going on, you had a fall and you hit your head, and she kind of points at her forehead, to kind of imply, "Hey, old guy, you hit your head, you don't know what you're thinking is and what happened, and Emil's kind of sitting there going, no, 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 that, that, that didn't happen, there was, a, there was a guy here, and he was, he was, he was African American, he says, you know, there was, a, there was a black gentleman here, you know, and he had a rubber hose, and you know, I don't, and everyone's like, no... That didn't happen and they're very condescending to him and we, we learn right around there too that he's He's just turned 70. And the next scene, we go to the house where he lives in with um, his uh, with his son, Stanley, and uh, daughter-in-law, Peggy, who is pregnant. And I forget what Stanley does. And I don't think it actually matters. And they're having sort of a party for a meal. And a meal is, is sort of very, you know, well, my dad just, he, he had an accident and he saw a friend of his die. No, I saw my friend murdered. And he's very insistent. And the son is sort of, well, if my dad says he saw it, he saw it. He saw something. and But the daughter-in-law and everyone else is sort of, eh, you know what? He's getting old. Maybe he really didn't see it. So what begins to happen is Emile begins to investigate. He sort of goes back into the neighborhood. He goes to try to visit that annoying woman who basically just sort of insults and berates him, the, the annoying witness woman. Yeah. Um, then he tries to go visit uh, Louis um, when he's playing um, in a, like a schoolyard with a bunch of his friends. And they end up like throwing a, uh, like an empty tin can at his head. And it doesn't go well. And, uh, and at one point, he sees the killer in a car, and the killer does that sort of, you know, the thing across your throat. It's a, <laughs> yes. My finger is a knife, and your dad thing. Um, I don't know that it has a name, but um, you know what I mean. And he and Emil goes to the cops, and the cops are more or less like, "Oh, what did you see? Oh, sure, whatever. Oh, it, it was a black guy. What do you what do you have against blacks?" And Emil's like, "No, I don't have any. What are you talking about? I don't." And Emil is, it's it. it, it, it he continues his investigation to try to find out who killed his friend, to try to find out what's going on, to try to find out why it's so difficult to, to, to figure out, you know, to, to, to get anything done in this neighborhood. Everyone seems to be sort of against him. Spoiler, you kind of learn that that's true in the end. But that is mixed with his family. Basically, he Emil comes home one night and his family have, um, have invited over to the house Ed Asner. And you know when Ed <laughs> Asner... Is in your living room, shit's going down, and and, and he plays a um, he plays a doctor Morheim, who, who kind of puts um, Emile under observation for a little while, and says, well, you know, your dad seems pretty normal, and they they give him sodium pentothal, and they just. It's they they cannot reconcile his story with everything else everyone said, and so as the story goes along, Emil gets in sort of deeper and deeper into the strange world, trying to find this man and prove he was right. While at the same time, his family is basically thinking, I think it's time to put Dad in the uh, in the nut house. And so you get as I'm not I'll stop around here, but it's sort of like they, they begin to converge. Like he's either going in the nut house or he's going to solve this crime or maybe something else will happen. But uh, I'm going to stop there because I almost gave away uh, the ending. So I'm going to stop. So, but that's that's your basic <laughs> thing. An old guy tries to prove that he wasn't crying wolf.
0: <laughs> that is it. It's a perfect title. Um, yeah, we are just so everybody knows we are going to spoil the ending because I think it's an important ending to talk about. Yeah, um, yeah, and so uh, no. I'd seen this one before, but I believe this was the first time for both of you. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes.
0: Okay. So let's go ahead and get your thoughts before we dive into the heart of the movie. So, John, what did you think of The Old Man and Craig Wolf?
2: Oh, I really, I really enjoyed it. I, I, th- I thought it was really engrossing from the get-go. It's, um, what, I, what I do love about TV movies is they just, they don't fuck about because they don't have the time. Yeah, you just get on with it. Um, so they, they tend to, you know, if they if the drag and the the bore, and then it's a really bad TV movie. Um, so this, yeah, it was really engrossing. I I thought Ebby Robinson's performance was really moving. I Thought he was really, um, you just felt for him straight away, um. And, uh, yeah, I, I loved the sense of, um, I loved the tension and the sort of the fact that nobody would believe him. And you're screaming at the TV, but, but, you know, just wishing someone would listen to him and not think he's just a crazy old person. I thought that was really touching. And I was completely um, shocked by the ending. I didn't expect that to happen at all.
0: Yeah, the first time I saw it, I was like, what?
2: Yeah. Because that's not
0: how movies end, right? And so it just kind of floors you.
2: I was really impressed. I, I, I was quite surprised by, so it's filmed in LA, isn't it? Downtown LA. I
0: believe so, yeah.
2: Pretty, yeah. yeah, I was pretty sure of that. And it, just how grotty everything looks, how dirty, um, you know. Um, like you said, you just mentioned earlier about the the, uh, the the sign outside the shop saying it had been looted, and every time he's in that area, all you can hear is like the wail of sirens and people are screaming in the streets and and stuff. And if I thought it's the it's the least Aaron Spelling looking thing I've ever seen, <laughs> you know, true, it's not yeah. that. It's not that glamorous view of Los Angeles that you get from anything else that you would normally associate him with. Um, the, 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 this film isn't about the glamour. It's, about, it's really about the message. And I feel like the message is really strong.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you liked it. Dan, what did you think yeah. of The Old Man of Cried Wolf?
2: So this is this is uh, October 13th,
1: 1970. And whenever you're in the house with his um, with his kids like when they have a the birthday party for him it feels very sort of late 60s to me sort of mm. but whenever he's but whenever he goes out onto the street it feels early 70s so he's almost in like two different like when there's a scene where he locks himself inside the house it's almost like he's like boy this this decade that's coming up this is going to be a rough one i need to make sure <laughs> everything's bolted up here because i'm safe inside this you know it, it, it's, it's fun because when you when you're out on the street everything's very real when you're in their house it's clearly up just a big lovely set so yeah. so there's something sort of almost very mm-hmm. artificial about the place he is able to hide in. And and there's something, too, about there's a slight disconnect for me between whenever you see the exterior of the house, which is mainly, like, in darkness from a distance, almost like they couldn't get too close to the house. Like, just take a shot of this one. Okay, we got it. Let's go, 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 go. <laughs> um, and, and so there's kind of a disconnect between where the house is, the interior of the house, the streets. And it it, it makes it all kind of weird because it's like... It's it's a, a poor Emil. I mean, he's an old guy. He's retired. He, he just wants to rest. He doesn't want to be stuck in the middle of this, like, you know, the the 60s are over, the 70s are beginning. And it's just like, oh, just let me sit quietly in my son's mm-hmm. house. I want to have a nice time. I just want to relax. I don't want all this. I don't want people throwing tin cans at my head. I don't want people beating me with okay. rubber hoses. That ain't what I'm here for. And the the, the movie is, it's it's interesting because I, I think it's a very brave movie movie. I mean, I was very, like, when, when the movie ended, I told my wife what I just watched, and when I told her the ending, she said, oh, that's terrible. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> and I said, well, uh-huh. I, was, I said, was it was great. Yeah, and she was like, mm, "Why, why why did you pick that one? And I said, well, we're going to talk about it. But, um, but it, it's, um, it's it has a sort of, it, when I watch it, I, I thought of, um, well, I thought of two movies. I thought of The Screaming Woman.
3: I mm, did too, yeah. And,
1: and, and She Cried Murder.
3: Mm, and yeah. The
1: Scream the screaming, the screaming woman has the thing. Is that the, that's the Linda Day George Telly Savalas one, right? Yes, yes. Um, and she cried. Murder is a favorite of mine. I just think that's an absolute hoot. know, yeah, and I'll watch Linda Day in anything. And and the screaming woman has the thing where the um, you know, the old woman there who apparently hears the voice screaming from the ground is she's meant to be sort of slightly touched. Which is why folks kind of don't believe her. Whereas he's meant to be in control of his uh, faculties. And it's just, it's it's just it's, it's, it's interesting in that the deeper he goes into it, the, the sort of, you, you expect there to be a point where it's like, oh, now someone's going to see the light. Now we're going to break through. And the deeper he goes into it, like especially near the end where he visits that city councilman, yeah. it's just the deeper he goes into it, the worse it gets. And you know he's the least, he's not a superhero, He is the least equipped person to suddenly be involved in this network of awful stuff yeah. and you wonder how is he going to get out of it well we'll talk about that soon but I, I did like I didn't I don't know that I can ever watch it again unless you're on a commentary Amanda then I will buy okay. <laughs> <on course>. this <laughs> and I will watch it again um, but I don't know if I can watch it again just because um I really appreciated it I thought it was a brave movie but I, I didn't I didn't by the end I didn't, I didn't have much fun which is you don't have to have fun but it was for a tv movie in 1970 i was kind
2: of surprised it's definitely not a fun like fluffy film is it it's it's kind of it's sort of but it's entertaining in a way but it's it's more it's more gripping you do it does drag you in and you just want to see what happens you really need to know that this guy you know proves to everyone that he's not mad and proves that something awful has happened to his friend you you, you just have to see it through to the end and i think that's the strength of the film but it's definitely not like oh let's put that on that'll be a good time you know (laughs) definitely definitely one of those
0: yeah it's
2: (laughs) clear the room Yeah. yeah yeah
0: it's an interesting twist on the paranoia film right because here it's not just dealing with the paranoia but it's also placing the paranoia on the idea that everybody thinks that this man is senile so on top of the fact that that he has no proof that his friend was actually murdered nobody's going to take him seriously simply because he's a 70-year-old man even though he's a 70-year-old man who's never had signs of being senile even yeah, even his absolutely. son starts to question his what he's seen and it becomes really frustrating you know as a viewer in a good way i mean it's not like i'm I think the film is flawed. It's one of its strengths is how casually... Everybody just sort of disregards him. And even the one who loves him the most starts to question these things. And so it's a really heart-wrenching film for me to watch because we, as the audience, know what the people that aren't Emil don't know. And so we know he's completely correct. And in a way, I wasn't sure if they went about the film in the right way. Now, I love the movie, but I, I, I wondered if maybe they should have held off the stuff with Percy Rodriguez until the end. Who, now he's the guy that is mm. killing the friend, um,
3: Frank Jones. Yeah.
0: yeah, because because maybe we should have been questioning these things too. Because I think mm. in a way, if you're going to talk about ageism and how we treat the elderly, it, maybe we it could have benefited by making us more complicit, right? See, by having our own thoughts. But yeah. the way it plays yeah. out is great. It's you know it's a, it's it's at its core, it's a thriller. And I and I yeah. don't know that Aaron Spelling was trying to make it this like a, a deep meditation. I think he was just trying to point out these sort of inherent stereotypes that we have about older people. And that's a really important thing. And and that's a thing that was very passionate, uh, a passionate topic for him. And um, I'm saying that because in his biography of primetime life, he dedicates a section to it, to talking about how he really liked to bring uh, actors from the classic era of of theatricals into television because he felt that they were being really disregarded as they got older by Hollywood, especially women. Because once they sort of turn 40, they sort of lose their yeah. selling points, right? Which is horrifying to him. And so if you watch things like Love Boat, Love Boat is such an empowering show if you really sit and watch it because you couldn't be too rich or too poor. You couldn't be too old or too young, right? You could be divorced. You could be single. You could be anything and you could find love, right? And yeah. so it crossed all these boundaries. And um, and I think that part of what pushed him was this idea that he wanted to give work to these really great actors such as Edward G. Robinson, Barbara Stanwyck, Olivia de Havilland, you name it, he's had him on something, right? Yeah. And so, and he always treats them with a lot of dignity. Eleanor Parker did a couple of his movies, and um, and she was on Love Boat, and um, just fantastic stuff. And so, so this movie is like so layered on top of the fact that it's just a really well put together thriller, you know. And so I really appreciate that right out of the gate, the ABC movie of the week was really bringing in some pretty heady content. Right before this, he had done um, The Ballad of Andy Crocker, which I have to admit I haven't seen yet. But it's dealing with a Vietnam vet coming home, and everything has changed, partially because he has changed. And like it took us a long time to really talk about Vietnam vets in any real way on television. I think it was um, China Beach and Tour of Duty. And there was another show, wasn't there? Was it Tour of Duty that came out in the 80s? There was a couple of shows that appeared in the late 80s mm-hmm. where they were finally like, we're going to deal with this topic head on. Until then, there were characters that filtered in and out of shows. Or there was somebody like Magnum, who was a Vietnam vet, but it wasn't like the main part of his story. And we kind of skirted around it because we lost the war, right? And because a lot of these people came back very damaged or with problems or um, with struggles, right? And so we sort of pushed it under the carpet, but Aaron Spelling didn't. And as a matter of fact, he did it while the Vietnam War was happening on television where millions of people would see it. So here he's doing kind of the same thing, but dealing with another topic that was still relevant as far as I'm concerned, and that's ageism. And so... Uh, I know I'm going to keep going back to that, even though and maybe I'm skipping over how good the movie is just as a thriller. But the point is is that he's taking the that sort of paranoid kind of subgenre where you don't know whether or not the person's crazy, something like Rosemary's Baby maybe, right?
2: That's yeah. it, yeah. That's that's what I thought of throughout, throughout it. I was getting the same palpitations that I got in the last 45 minutes of Rosemary's Baby where nobody will listen to her and she goes to the doctor and, oh, no, he's in on it. And that's, that was the vibe I was getting from this, totally.
0: Yeah, it's so upsetting because you know... <laughs> He's trying so hard to, like, get just, justice for his friend who dies yeah. on camera in a really horrifying way. And there's nothing Shocking, like, watch, yeah. Yeah, like watching Absolutely. old people get killed. Like, So, for instance, oh. um, the Hysteria Continues just covered the fan. And one of the things I love about the fan is that, like, um, I said, Maureen Stapleton is the assistant to Lauren Bacall. And she oh. gets cut up. And it's really brutal. And um, and you never see things like that. And there's, some, there's something really taboo. Isn't it shocking does that? Which is a TV movie that John mm-hmm. Batta made a little after this one where we're dealing with things that we don't normally see. And they're very harrowing. And so yeah. when Emilio's friend is murdered, it's like there's blood on his head. Like it's like yeah. I'm like they mm-hmm. think it's a heart attack because I clearly saw he was bleeding from his head. You know
1: did, did you see that the the one thing when they when they're saying to him like well, well I, I was buying candy from him and then he had a heart attack and yet he still has the glass of wine in his hand did you see that and it's still spilled on the floor it's like so wait a minute so he was getting you candy when he had a little glass drinking oh, that's wine is that that does that the, because the moment I saw that, I thought, now wait a minute, someone's clearly lying. No one point, no one mentions it. Mm. But normally, if you go into a sweet shop, the guy, especially the kids go into, the guy at the counter doesn't have a glass of booze in his hand. Normally,
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> <Not> normally,
0: <though. laughs> well, it depends no. on how many kids you've dealt with that day, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> true. True. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be knocking him yeah. back
0: like from ten a m on. Was, just be yeah. honest <laughs> <laughs>
2: around by around around here where I live, it's usually the kids that bring the wine in with them. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, that's cool. <laughs>
3: that's
2: cool.
0: <laughs> we gotta have wine with your candy. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't I didn't notice that, but yeah, there's all these indications that that Emil is telling the truth. And I think a scene I'd like to talk about is when he goes to the schoolyard to visit the kid. Oh. Louis! Louis!
4: Louis! Louis! Louis, uh,
3: the other day I was in Mr. Stillman's candy store and you were there. I was in the back room where he lived, you remember? You wanted a compass for your geometry class. Right after you left, somebody else came in. Did you see someone else come in? Louis! Louis, please!
0: And the way that shot is mm. so upsetting because he goes and the, and I don't know if we can explain it, but like he's all the kids are on the playground and they kind of stop for a minute and they stare at him. And I can't remember if they throw the can first or if then they throw the can, but it cuts his head. Mm. And then there's like these sort of weird camera shots of the kids laughing
3: mm-hmm.
0: and And you can't tell if that's Emil seeing something Slightly like he's dazed, like he's yeah. built it up yeah. in his head or if this is actually happening. And then they kind of go about their business like ten seconds later.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I just assumed that it was it was real. It wasn't. what he was imagining and those kids were just laughing. They were just being really mean to him because he's just this crazy old man who's hanging around the schoolyard, isn't he? Really, to them. Yeah.
3: That's what
2: they. That's what they see him as. Um, I was confused. What was Louis eating? Was that like tin peaches or something? He was eating them straight it from was, the can in the schoolyard. Yeah,
0: I'm not really sure. I've never seen that before. I did go to a baseball game once, and only once. And um, and the couple sitting next to me were eating like Vienna sausages out of like a oh, little sure. sardine can. It was disgusting.
2: With a knife.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't even know if they had a knife. It was just like yeah. oh, with
1: like a Swiss Army
2: knife. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was horrifying. Now it is. It's just it's, it, it is a really upsetting scene, and I I feel like. The whole thing is just about about the fact that once you start to get old nobody takes you seriously You're either a point of ridicule or you're invisible. It's one or the other basically and at this point He is he is definitely the point of ridicule for those kids
0: Yeah, it's harrowing. I did just every time that's the scene I always remembered because I saw this movie uh, For the first time about 10 years ago and when I was looking back on it and that's the scene I always remembered and I also remembered a scene I don't even know what they were talking about, but it was Ed Asner, Martin Balsam, and Edward G. Robinson, all standing sort of in a semicircle. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of baby fat and body hair in one frame. <laughs> it's like three kind of what do you call that? Bullet chested men, like <laughs> having a conversation. And it's interesting that Ed Asner's in this, and I'm so used to Ed Asner like sort of being a more heroic sort of character or likable, but he's yeah. he's already as a doctor. He's. It's interesting because he he really has no sense of oh, what's the word I want to use. He has no proper bedside manner. He's already come in with these mm-hmm. sort of prejudices.
2: Yeah, no empathy uh, towards. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. He's not. He's not a soft character, is he at all? And no. the nurse as well. Towards the end, she oh was the same. Really, oh, sure. nurse ratchet style. But what I was impressed by though with the film was that. As as much as these people were sort of they weren't sympathetic towards them, they also weren't camp villains either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought because my I mean, my um my experience of Aaron Spelling taking on mental health is basically Melrose Place. So it's yeah. like, you know, Kimberly <laughs> with a drill trying to give someone a lobotomy mm-hmm. or something. Um so I wasn't expecting that when one when, when the covering mental health in this film that the, the scenes are They're disturbing because you know that he's not crazy But at the same time They're not played in a campy way They're played in a really sort of sad way really You know And everybody in there Whether it's the Doctor or it's Stanley Or Stanley's wife Peggy Played by Diane Baker I noticed, I love her um, Yes Uh, Whether whoever it is, you can kind of see the point that they're trying to make when they're talking Mm -hmm. to him. They're not just being sort of, you know, twirling moustache villainous. That they they do feel bad for him, but they genuinely believe that he's Cena. You know, so you sort of feel bad for them as well, even though that they're in the wrong.
0: Well, it's a real struggle for um, Stanley to deal with the idea that his dad might be becoming senile. You can tell he really is fighting it. But in the end, he ultimately gives in to what everybody is telling him. He's got yeah. these authority figures, right? He's got the police and the medical institutions telling him that it's just his dad getting older. And so, like, it's it's really heart rendering that way. And there's probably a lot of um, adults who take care of their parents who probably have been in similar situations, you know, to um, these characters.
2: Well, yeah, Emil has been in this situation because he says, at one point, I, I had an uncle that they had to put away. So, you know what I mean? So he's so he's he been in the situation where he's seen a, an older relative, you know, quote, quote unquote, go crazy and ends up in a mental hospital. Um, so, you know, everybody's got that experience. So that's yeah. what he's terrified of.
0: Yeah. You know,
2: they're all scared.
0: When you what you said about them being disregarded or treated as invisible, I think that might be a nice segue to talk about a character that we haven't talked about at all yet. That's really important. And also we get to talk about the actress who's incredible. Ruth Roman plays like this aging prostitute. (laughs) Right. She plays Lois in the movie and she's great in it. Uh, But there is this idea when I when I watched it again um, this last week. Even though she turns out to be kind of a bad guy, I really Ooh. feel for her because she's really struggling as like this 40-something-year-old prostitute or 50-something. It's hard to know with Ruth, um, who seems <laughs> sort of ageless to me. She se- seemed like she turned 45 and just stopped yeah. aging after that. Um, but like um, but like the way she talks to him, like, hey, lover. You know, like the, in her. these really yeah. cutesy mm-hmm. ways, but she's kind of this hardened older woman. And, and it's sad. And you, and yet she's also like, I think the idea of what you said about invisibility really struck me because I think the way that she becomes more visible is to turn over this old man to, uh, Frank Jones.
4: Hey, you afraid of women or cops?
3: The man I'm looking for, big, not as big as this policeman. He uh, has a moustache and he has some grey hair. The uh, this man uh, wears a a, a tan raincoat.
4: Where'd you see him? What kind of a place?
3: He killed a friend of mine. What? They say it was a heart attack, but he had a rubber hose and he hit him. He hit him. He hit him.
4: You saw this? Look, I don't think we ought to talk about it here. I want to take you home. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I I gotta leave a message with a friend. Mr. Frank Jones would be about now. Mr. Frank Jones don't give me his schedule. I don't give him mine. He and his friends, they remember a favor, don't they? So I hear those. Well, to do them a favor from me and you, I got a feeling they'd like to know who I got in my room. Describe the old man's looks to him. I'll do it.
2: It's really sad mm-hmm. because there's a great I mean, there's a great exchange where Emile says to her, did you say that, you know, most people in the neighborhood? And she says, most men. <laughs> I, thought <laughs> that was really funny. I thought, oh, yeah, I love you. I absolutely love you. Um, and I thought when I grow up, I want to be like you. But then I saw her apartment and I was like, nah, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> um, I thought that was really depressing.
1: I, I, I do love the scenes with them because um, uh, he's he's. Trying to see if he can get any information. And she's constantly doing the, come on, lover, come on, and saying all these, these this bit of innuendo. And it's sort of like there's a mix on uh, Edward G. Robinson's, well, the character's face of like, I might be able to get s- some assistance from her in finding out what's going on, mixed with, why does she keep calling me lover? What's going on? <laughs> there's, there's never like, even when he goes to her apartment, you know, it's like, oh, she's going to make me a little something to eat and we're going to discuss Frank Jones, you know, but, but it's, 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 I, I, I just love sort of his face throughout it like where am i now what is happening yeah.
2: here yeah. well he's so confused this this is after he escapes from the mental hospital isn't it as well so he's really he's really he's, he's sort of baffled by everything at that point isn't he and uh, what i thought as well when, when the film finished and i looked back on it i thought it never gives you an easy way out because the, mm-hmm. the sort of uh the ruth roman's character lois she would normally be sort of um I don't know, a bit like comic relief, and she would she would be helpful. She would be the hooker with a heart of gold, mm. but even she is bad. Even she just doesn't care. She she's she's doing what she needs to do to survive, and that's selling a meal down the river. You
0: know? oh. Yeah, it's so upsetting because I forgot that she did that, and I was so into and the know, character. Disappointing. She, yeah. yeah, she's such a, a light fun character although sad too but like you, you just like her
1: frank jones comes in the room and emil's like his face drops and yeah. just the way she just leaves she doesn't say you know goodbye gentler she just walks right out yeah. and she's gone from the movie yeah. And we're going but on to something else she
2: she does kind of do him a favor though doesn't she because she leaves those eggs frying too close to her dirty And
1: that's true that's true <laughs> i sorry.
2: did wonder about that yeah <laughs> maybe she did it on purpose so maybe she's not so bad after all
0: I'm not real it, sure it, if "dirty curtains" is a double entendre, John.
2: It, so, it sounds like a euphemism. Say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to figure out what it might be. Yeah, let's say yes. I, let's
1: say. Okay. Even, even, at, even when you get to the end of the movie, there's a thing where you know he's he's in the middle of the city. It's nighttime. He meets those two guys who are very reluctant to help him, but who are also very helpful. And but 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 there's a, there's just like like the ending where his son comes to get him. He's going to drive Dad back to their house, but Frank Jones is following him and has been told, kill the old guy. And so that's happening there, and the other two guys are calling the cops, so you're waiting for the cops to show up. But then you think, even if Emil somehow does avoid uh, Frank Jones, he's going into a house with this crazy nurse, Ratchet, who's going to immediately take him away to like a nut house or an old folks home. So he literally, at that point, he's got like no place unless... There's some sort of miracle, and I guess in one way, a miracle kind of does happen in the end. Unless unless something really big happens, um, he's 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 up the creek no matter which way he goes. And it's just there's just something about the end of the, where you realize that that even though he might be safe in the car with his son, he's going to a place where he's going to be taken yeah, away.
0: That's right. Yeah, I, n- I never thought of that.
1: As it moves towards the ending, it's like, what is it? I mean, you're hoping that maybe like a, a superhero will show up. You're hoping that yeah. maybe he'll, he'll, he'll be, he'll, he'll get some, eat a can of spinach. <laughs> yeah. Like super just for a minute to just pick up a car and throw, just do something. Unfortunately, he does it because he's a 70 year old guy and it ends as it ends. But, but it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a and like I said, I think it's a very brave, brave
2: movie. No, i was just gonna say the, the way that they pile up the pile up the, the grimness towards the end is really strong as well because you have that moment where he go he finds the politician and he goes to him and you think oh maybe this guy's gonna help him and then it cuts cuts to nurse ratchets and peggy and there's a really heartbreaking moment when peggy realizes that when he goes into the home he's probably not going to be coming out again yeah. so she thinks that he's like gonna go away for she's only packed like three nights worth of shorts for him and she thinks you know it's going to be temporary and then the, the cold nurse basically says you know it's senile, par- senile paranoia that you know he's not going to be coming out again and then you think oh god okay but maybe the politician will help and then it cuts back to the politician and he's crooked and he's the one who's pulling all the strings and he's he's gonna get he's gonna get him killed basically you're just like oh no there's no hope
0: <laughs> so let's talk about the ending but before we talk about the ending one thing i wanted to point out that i i really like that aaron spelling did was that so um he made uh Frank Jones' um, character is played by Percy Rodriguez, who is a black actor. It's amazing in this movie, by the way. And and I was thinking about it because um, there's been an ongoing conversation about why black people always play bad guys in movies, right? And lots of people have talked about it, and we don't have to go in depth here. But it's a thing that has happened, and we were sort of complicit with it we just let it happen in film and now we're more aware of it but one of the things that i think that aaron spelling did or the filmmakers i think it's walter grauman directed this one um that i think is so important is that the two men who are trying to help emil the two guys who who come through for him are also black and yeah and the balance of that i think is so perfect and and so nuanced and so um subtly done but with an idea that we don't want to just Point a finger at black people, right? We want we 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 only have one black actor in this movie so far, and he's the bad guy. So let's show like the spectrum of black people, you know, in this neighborhood.
2: Yeah, and they don't even they they're not even Colin Leo on even couple out characters either because when they take him to one, of, I don't know whose apartment it is. It's Carl or Leo's apartment. There's like an easel and stuff, and you see that one of them is like an artist or an architect, and then. Um, even in the dialogue towards the end, one of them mentions that he's got exams tomorrow.
0: That's right.
2: So, so he's educated. He's urbane. He's an educated man, and he's going to rescue this poor old man. So, you know, he's not. They're not even just like in there as tokens. They're in there. They're in there as sort of not fully fleshed out, but. The are more rounded than you think they are, really, those two those two guys.
0: Yeah, I, I, so it's part of the movie that I really appreciate uh, that he did. And it also was really nice to see people take a meal at face value, right? And mm-hmm. um, and possibly yeah. because they are marginalized characters as well, right? So yeah, yeah. living yeah. in this really horrible town, as part of the city that they live in. And, um, and even at the end when they feel sort of helpless and they have to let him go about his way when he goes to see the councilman, they go ahead and make the phone call just to make yeah. sure that he's okay. And it's such a... a really moving part of the film for me. It really sticks out to me as something that I think the audience also needed because we're all sitting here saying, Emilio's right. So there has to be just one, we can't all be this corrupt, right? In this place. Oh, and then mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. come these two like sort of beautiful people that come and, and at least do their best to try to rescue him.
3: Yes. Yeah. It's,
0: it's such a lovely touch to the film and very well balanced um, and with a lot of thought. Uh, like John pointed so, out, you know, these characters are real, they come across as very real people. And it also shows the spectrum of, we're not just going to stick a black guy in here and make him a bad guy. There's all kinds yeah. of people in the world and blah, blah, blah. And I just think it's just what well Done and I wanted to point it out and
2: also also the black guy who's who's the bad guy is he's having his strings pulled by the evil white politicians right. as well so that's mm-hmm.
0: right yeah there are white bad guys too well I mean and aside from also nurse ratchet and the doctor yeah. and they're sort of under the radar bad guys because they come in as like these authority figures right and I guess the police yeah. do as well and and we're supposed to like respect their opinion but they're completely wrong about everything too you know mm. So it's just the whole world is working against him. And that comes to play at the end. So I don't know, Dan, do you want to go ahead and, and sort of give us the ending?
3: Oh, sure. Sure, sure. That's a rough so, one. Um,
1: so, uh, so Stanley is taking Emil home where obviously he's going to get taken away as soon as as soon as they get there. And uh, Frank Jones, along with the, uh, a guy, are, are, are following uh, Emil. And they've basically been told to kill him. And uh, there's there's some sort of um, like a a detour has been set up or something as they're driving home. And so they, they end up having to go down an alley. And they get to the end of the alley, and there's a car blocking the end of the alley. And, and the the son is like, oh, what is this? This is crazy. And Emil immediately recognizes, oh, my God, that's that's uh, Frank Jones's car. He's yeah. around here somewhere. And he's just saying, come on, let's just back it up. Back it up. Let's get out of here. Come on, back it up. And Stanley, his son, is like, oh, no, let me show you something, Dad. Let me just – let me. and he begins to get out of the car. And then the moment he steps out of the car, you hear like a little noise. And suddenly, Emil doesn't look well. And Stanley is a little confused for a bit. And then he realizes that his dad has just been shot. And I believe, forgive me if I'm wrong, I think uh, Emil says, is it UC? think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. uh, are his last words. And he dies in his dad's arms. And the movie ends. And I believe you can hear sirens in the background. But you don't know if those are the sirens you're always hearing. Or whether those Mm. are the cops (laughs) uh, coming to them. How they would know they were down the alley, I'm not sure. Unless they are complicit in it too and maybe set up the the detour I think or something like
0: that. I think when the when the two guys called the police at the end, mm-hmm. I think they probably saw the detour too. do you know what I mean I think mm-hmm. the police were coming sure, yeah. that's that was my mm-hmm. assumption at the end so I assumed these sirens were for them, but that's a really good point you brought out because there's so much sirens in the background that it keeps going like is this being taken seriously still right yes <laughs> so so tell me your initial reactions to the ending, John.
2: Hmm. I was uh, I was shocked and I I was shocked and moved and I thought what I really liked about it was that there were no bells and whistles there were no pyrotechnics you didn't even see the bullet it, there wasn't even a big gunshot it was just like as Dan said, a little noise and then he dies and then it ends It's just like kicks you in the stomach and walks away basically that that's how it, that's how the <laughs> film ends it's
0: like this bully kids
2: yeah it's just it's so powerful and you know ruminating on on it as well I, I kept going back over. Uh, the, the beginning of the film when you saw a meal with Abe before Abe died and I kept thinking about their history as well and they're two older Jewish men they talk about the old country, they talk about Poland and you know they the, what they've lived through to get here <laughs> you yeah. know, they've lived through the Holocaust to get here um, and the, the younger generation won't quite get what what they've been through they won't quite get the struggle that they've been through and emil throughout this film is dealing with people who are burying their heads and not looking at what he's trying to get them to look at and he has seen firsthand in his home country uh, as a younger man mm-hmm. what happens when that happens when when people don't pay attention to the evil that's that, right that surrounds oh that's so interesting know? yeah
0: you're doing the commentary um, I, with me john
2: because <laughs> <laughs> that's so, such a great so, point so for, for me, I carry, I felt that weight of of. I felt that weight on Emil's shoulders throughout the film. So for him to then just be shot like that and then just die quietly, it was really just really powerful.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Dan, what did you think?
1: Oh yeah, well, when it ended, I I actually I rewound it. Um, just just a few minutes. Did I just see? Did that? Did that yeah. just happen? Really? Yeah. They just they they literally. I was gonna say like they they literally like put him in an alley and shot him. I mean, it's like like sort of sort of the way like all his like prospects and everything trying to figure out what's going on and just his life. They just get thinner and thinner and thinner. And then finally he's in an alley and he gets he gets silently killed Mm -hmm. and it's over. And it was just I I was I was I was uh, shocked. I was taken aback. I really did want, want to see him not die. Boy, that would have been great. <laughs> if they could have figured out a way where he didn't have to be shot in an alley, that mm-hmm. would have been awesome. I, I do. The, the, the two things that did come to me, though, is I wonder what, what happens immediately after that. Yeah. Would they have to shoot the sun, too? Um, uh, mm. I, I don't know, because I, I thought what was going to actually happen was he was going to hear the noise, look at his dad. And then all of a sudden the car was just the, the, the Frank Jones's car was just going to peel backwards out of there so he couldn't see it anymore. And then he realized, but the car is still there. So I'm wondering um, how mm-hmm. that's going to work. I mean, because if, if the car doesn't go soon and the cops are coming, unless everyone can convince, you know, the the son that he's crazy, like his dad, what's going to happen right there? But it, it just, just right at that moment, it's like, oh, my God. And th- the weird thing is there are so many bad people in this movie, and because of the way it ends, as far as you know, none of them are going to get their comeuppance. There, there's yeah. going to be no way that, you know, old guy who might be senile shot in alley is going to topple that city councilman. You know, Frank Jones is probably not going to get caught. Those cops aren't going to get taken down. That really annoying lady, you fell on your head, she's going to be just that kind of half-like – um The last time you see her, he's he's trying to catch her and she's in a bus and he's been shot up with sodium pentothal and he's a bit woozy trying to catch her. Mm -hmm. And like the last time you see her, she's in a bus looking at him and she has a bit of um, a look on her face that's a mix of almost shit-eating grin and a bit of, forgive me, kind of go fuck yourself, old man, kind of look on her face. Mm -hmm. And you're like, none of these bad people I think are going to get their comeuppance in any way, which is always tough. I mean, I know – I mean I my first thought it was like Night of the Living Dead. You know, mm. maybe someone who someone who was writing it was like, "Oh, Night of the Living Dead, you shoot the guy in the end." So that's what we'll do. but Night of the Living Dead actually had a bit of, you know, he makes it through the night. It mm. just happens to be a bit ironic in the end whereas this is like he doesn't make a literally he doesn't make it through the night. He's yeah. still right there. Yeah. And 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 and, and the, the last thing I will say is that I just realize the teleplay is luther davis from a story by arnold horwitt now i only know arnold horwitt from one other thing he co-wrote around this time in early 1970 the green acres episode <laughs> the case of the hooterville tax refund fraud
0: that one is such a <laughs> and, dark and, ending doesn't and, don't they kill oliver at uh, the end of that one
1: Dude, that's the one that that's the one where Oliver gets a tax refund and everyone's like what's and everyone in Hooterville's like what's that well you get a tax refund you know if you lose money or whatever or whatever happens that they, they refund you so everyone writes in for a refund they all get thousands of dollars because they've never got a refund before but then you learn they've never paid taxes before <laughs> so, so so there's a problem. and they end up in order to make the money back Mr. Haney opens a monkey racing track where the monkeys run sure. down a track chasing a wooden banana sure so wow. that's so it's fantastic. But the moment I saw his name, I said, Arnold, hold, don't tell me the, the monkey in the wooden banana episode of Green Acres. And I thought, wow, that's the same year he came up with. How about this one where this old guy sees a murder then gets <laughs> shot dead in an alley by a gangster? I've also got this wacky idea for Green Acres.
0: He said it just like that too, like, uh, like uh, um, Groucho <laughs> Marx.
3: <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs>
0: yeah, the first time I saw this, and I've only seen it twice. Um, I was really blown away because I wasn't... I I don't expect movies to end like that. I expect something to happen at the very end that saves the protagonist, right? That's just the way it goes. Ooh. And also TV movies, I, I think, have a reputation for having more vanilla endings, although quite a few don't. But, like, I think as they went on, we started to see this sort of, like... um I, Vanilla is the only word I can think of, you know, this sort of mainstreaming of it. And so... But here... It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is how it ended. And the first time I saw it, I I think I had to watch it twice, too, the ending, because the sound was so subtle to me that I couldn't tell if he was having a heart attack or if yeah. he actually uh, was shot. And I remember thinking that the first time and I was very confused. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the press that the ending of this movie garnered. But like um, I was like, this can't be this can't be. And, uh, and so when I was watching it again, it's it's. One of those movies, you're right, you can't watch it over and over because knowing what I knew the second time going in made it harder to watch this time because you know where it's all leading. And so everything has like a heavier feel to it.
2: It's futile, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's just it's hard. It's really hard to watch this movie because Edward G. Robinson is so beautiful and wonderful in it. And so moving and and you just know he's not going to get out of the Emilio Emile, this character that we've come to love so deeply in like 72 minutes is not going to come out of this and it's just heart rendering and it's just I can't do it right but like um, (laughs) but I think like I said this shows the scope of what spelling could do and was doing especially in the TV movie world and it's interesting because. Despite the fact that Edward G. Robinson appeared in it, and I think this was his first TV movie and one of only a couple that he did, um, and it might not be his first one, but I think it is... um, there's not a lot of documentation about this film, even in Aaron Spelling's own book, where he has a very small section dedicated to his TV movie work. And at the end, he has sort of a handpicked selection of TV movies that he's really proud of. And a lot of them are really important films, like And the Band Played On, which is about AIDS. He did one, I think it was called Day One, which is about nuclear war. The uh, Best Little Girl in the World with uh, Jennifer Jason Leeds about anorexia. Like those, he makes a point... To uh, yeah. talk about, but like this one, I think is as important in what it's doing, but it's one that he didn't mention, and you never see people mention it, and I don't fully understand why, because just Whoa. the fact that Edward G. Robinson appeared in a TV movie already makes it something that you think cinephiles would be searching out, right? And yeah, and yet it's fallen through the cracks, and I can't I can't figure out why, but um, and I think when people see it, I think they'll see what the TV movie. It's such a great example of, um. TV movies have variety and they do things that they're not always going to go the way you expect. And they can be really surprising and they can be very artistically rendered and um, and they can be beautiful and, and moving and, and upsetting. And they can be all these things. And I think the old man and Crab wolf does all of it in 72 minutes. Right. So it just makes this such an important film to me.
2: Well, it just, it has a lot to say as well. It's got a lot to say about society, hasn't it? And ageism and racism and films with that kind of message that, that are then brave enough to sort of follow it through to a devastating ending like that. They should get more coverage than this one's got, for sure.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Dan, did you want to add anything before I just go on to the background and then we'll move on to a much happier TV movie? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no,
1: actually, I, I, think, I, I think I've think i said everything I, uh, I want to say on this one.
0: Okay, so just real quick, um, I know we talked about watching it a second time is really rough, but you would recommend this movie, right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yes yes yeah okay. if you're if you're a movie fan a tv movie fan this is this is i mean yeah we we may have ruined the ending for you sorry i should have yelled out spoiler um but uh, <laughs> it's, uh yeah it's, it's still it's still worth watching to see the journey and and what it does
0: yeah i probably should have thrown the recommendation up first because um <laughs> i did say there would be spoilers so hopefully people go in blind and then come back to the podcast if they haven't seen it if not sorry but it's still worth seeing <laughs> just for G. robinson i mean i think he's wonderful in it and um i've never known him to not be wonderful and you won't be let down by this one. So this aired on ABC. Again, it was an ABC movie of the week. It aired on October 13th, 1970. Um, it did okay in or not okay, I'm sorry, it did fabulous in the ratings. Um it got a 25.0 slash 37, which I think roughly translates to something like 37% of homes with televisions were watching um The Old Man Who Cried Wolf on the Night It Air, which is over a third of America. It came in number 15 of the highest rated uh, TV movies to air in the 1970-71 season. And it ran against some heavy hitters. So on NBC was Julia, which was a really great sitcom. and then it was there was a theatrical that followed it with Marlon Brando called Night of the Following Day, which is a movie I'm not familiar with. And then on no. CBS was um, Hee Haw, which we all love and which I probably, I guess mm-hmm. I wasn't born yet, but that's probably what I would have watched. And then <laughs> after that was a romantic comedy series with John Forsythe called To Roam with Love. And then an episode of 60 Minutes. Um, I don't know what To Rome with Love is, but I'm seeking it out because it looks amazing. Again, I, Dan already mentioned this teleplay was by Luther Davis, who also wrote Across 110th Street. And he wrote and produced Lady in a Cage. So he has a really interesting uh, background. The story is by Arnold Horwitt. This is his only TV movie credit. Um, He was a lyricist who wrote several Broadway stage scores, which I thought was really interesting. This was one of Edward G. Robinson's last projects. Um his last being the TV movie Mooch, which I think is about a dog, and I think I might have a copy of it. I think that actually got a DVD release. According to Robinson, in an interview to promote The Old Man Who Cried Wolf, he originally wasn't interested in television, but he felt that TV gave him a new start on his career, and that's something we sort of talked about when we talked about Aaron Spelling giving all these people work um, in programming there. Uh, He said he really enjoyed working in TV. Um, He also said he thought Emil was really interesting, and it as an actor, he found that there was a lot he could do with the character, which I think he did. He would he would really only do a handful of TV work, which really started here. I think he was on an episode of um, Bracken's World the same year he did this. He would also go on to be pretty unforgettable in the Night Gallery episode, The Messiah of Mott Street. I'm not sure if you guys have seen that, but it's a no. Christmas um, Night Gallery episode. Oh, yes. With yes, Yafet Kota. And he plays yes. an old man who's dying, and his grandson goes out looking for help. And he runs into this guy, played by Yafet Kota, who he thinks is God. And he brings him home and all this amazing stuff happens. It's a really beautiful episode. Um, that's I guess those are th- this and that are actually what I know Evergy Robinson best for. And I know uh, obviously he's done way huge things bigger than that. But these are the things that I kind of grew up with him with and stuff like that. So anyway, of Emil, he said, the man I play is a character that many people can identify with. The whole world seems to be against him, but he has to prove he is right. The production company was most fair and met my terms. I'm not a difficult actor, but a man my age must ask for some concessions. I greatly enjoyed doing the film, and my closest friend for 60 years, Sam Jaffe, who played the murder victim at the beginning, was in the picture to give me support. So I don't know what the concessions were, but maybe he wanted a nap. That's a total ageism oh. stereotype, by the way.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he <shots are> cigars. <laughs>
0: yeah, that might be it, yeah. But, cigars
2: um, and hookers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> Can I just say just quickly before we move on to the next one? It um, was just uh, the the scene in the precinct where he goes to tell the police what's ha- what's happened. There's a fabulous um, precinct hooker that gets dragged past the screen oh, okay. with a wife. Uh, it's one of my favourite things to spot in American TV. Oh, yes, yes. from from hookers, the seventies yeah. and eighties. Cagney and Lacey always does a good background hooker in <laughs> the precinct. Yes, so yeah, I love yeah. that. So yeah. shouts out had- to that hooker.
0: I would love it if they had an actress that always played the background hooker. Like that was the her same job. One, yeah. Yeah, they just bring her in. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm By working area. on policewoman today. Yeah, I'm the background hooker. I would
2: hooker. love that job. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> so um
0: Uh, Robinson appeared to have been cast in the uh, Man of Cried Wolf in March of 1970 as we know it aired in October. So this one had a little bit more time to, I think, for production than a lot of TV movies have. We've talked about that in other episodes. Um, Robinson um, and Martin Balsamo, who plays the son, actually appeared together in a theatrical movie titled uh, The Middle of the Night, which was released about 12 years prior to the old Man of Cried Wolf. Production started around May of 1970. In May of that year, Spelling actually sold three TV movies, um, I think, to the ABC Movie of the Week. So that would be The Over the Hill Gang. Love, Hate, Love, which is fantastic. Um, and this movie, The Old Man of Cried Wolf. Uh, And while Ruth Roman had worked heavily in episodic television in the 1960s, The Old Man Who Cried Wolf was actually her first film since the early 60s, Um, although it was made for TV, but she had kind of not done a theatrical or a feature film since like 62, I think. The Miami Herald said that Robinson gave a quote-unquote beautiful performance. The Minneapolis Star said that it was better than average. These were like the only reviews I could find. Um, The St. Joseph News Press from St. Joseph, Missouri wrote, quote, Robinson hasn't lost a touch. He's still able to communicate cold-blooded fear, inarticulate frustration." Frustrations and gutsy determination. I think that's a really great synopsis of Robinson's character right there. Variety Variety raved about the film, and they wrote, "quote The last few moments of the teleplay produced uh, the kind of acting, directing, and writing tour de force cherished by devotees of the thriller format." Cecil Smith of the L. A. Times said the ending broke his heart because it was a cop out. But if Spelling's worth, Smith wrote, "quote Spelling captured a genuine ghetto feeling." of a a patched and broken and burnt out forgotten edge of existence which I love, that's a really beautiful quote so I want to talk a little bit about the controversy of the ending, I can't remember when newspaper did it and I actually found this through Wikipedia so if you want to go to the footnotes of Wikipedia you'll see it but apparently somebody reviewed the movie and they gave it a really good review and then like a week later they reneged their review because they were confused by the ending and I think both articles appear on the Wikipedia links and I'm doing this off memory. Cause I didn't copy and paste the article, but I guess Percy Rodriguez had to do like an, uh interview to sort of clear up how it ended because a lot of people were confused by it and so the critic was said that he thought the movie was really good but that he had to sort of give it some markdowns because um because it was confusing audiences and that's interesting because my first viewing of it i fully didn't understand what happened myself and i guess maybe that's the point because i think even Mm -hmm. though we are complicit and we know what's happening to him more so than the other characters I, i think there should be this idea of of what exactly has happened you know what i mean for me it's well played but i maybe if you don't get that chance to rewind it like i did it mm, it could be uh-huh. really frustrating for viewers right so yeah and that's the old man who cried wolf uh a movie that we all enjoyed yeah, it, not a pick me up but something worth seeing oh. Yeah, and I think a very important (laughs) film, and as you guys have said, brave. And so I would recommend it. But now let's go to Charlie's Angels because, let's face it, the whole world revolves around Charlie's Angels. And so it's time we've (laughs) talked (laughs) about it and put (laughs) our hearts out there.
4: From the producers of Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels. They work for me. My name is Charlie. Meet Jill, Kelly, and Sabrina, tempting angels who could capture any man. Charlie's
1: Angels. Now, I'm not a Charlie's Angels guy, so so I'm going to get names (gasps) wrong here, but it's Sabrina, Jill, and Kelly yeah i'm sorry um yeah. one day one day i will be and it's their bas- basically charlie calls them onto a case where they're going onto this big estate vineyard in i believe somewhere in california um that was owned by a guy named like vincent lemare lemare L- 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 i believe right. Lemaire. yes it. yes vincent lemare and vincent had a wife and a daughter and it's a huge 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 place and he had a um sort of um a foreman named Beau creole Come on. If that's not an evil name, I don't know <laughs> what an evil name is. And the wife died. I think I'm getting the order right. The wife died. And then Vincent, seven years ago, he disappeared yes. uh, after remarrying. I'm sorry. He remarried um, uh, Rachel. Rachel. Lemaire played by Diana Moldauer who you know she's kind of like the slightly jerky lady and everything you see her Mm. in and she is in this one too Uh, I love her I love her don't get me wrong but um, uh, so so uh, uh, Mr. Lemaire has Lemaire has has vanished Uh, his daughter kind of been sent here there and everywhere I would imagine like a sent to boarding school type thing and no one quite knows where the daughter is and this coming Saturday, I'm not sure when this begins, so I'm not sure if this is a Friday or a Monday, but this coming Saturday, he will be declared legally dead, Mr. Lemaire. And if, if the daughter, uh, Janet, isn't there, then it will go to Rachel and to Beau, who has now kind of taken over the place. And so the angels are sent in, um, uh, Kelly, I believe, is sent in, pretend to be Janet, and to try to get herself uh, in onto the property and um, they it's, it's, I don't want to go too deep into it because we'll discuss it, but it's basically they play sort of a long con with Bo and Rachel to try to basically find out what the heck happened to Mr. Lemaire. And it may have something to do with the swamp. And they sort of do a thing where um, she's questioned a lot. with uh, Rachel and Bo shows up and questions her, and she seems to get everything right. But then she almost runs into Tommy Lee Jones and gets something wrong with him. And there's an exact repeat of that scene, like 20 <laughs> minutes later.
0: is but- <laughs> yes, right.
4: Aram? Aren't you Aram? Aram Collegian? Yeah, that's right. But you don't remember me. No. And you've probably forgotten all about our blood oath. Janet LaMere. Yes. (laughs) This is getting to be some curve. (laughs) You know, you really haven't changed a bit. You have. Have I? Well, little girls do grow up, they say, sometimes into beautiful women. Thank you. Hey, how's your collarbone? Which collarbone is that? Well, don't you remember the day I fell out of the hayloft in the barn? The barn? The barn down by the river. You know, I'm getting pretty tired of meeting Janet Lemaire's every day. What the devil are you two up to? Who? You. And the one yesterday, the one that filled you in. <laughs> filled me in about what? You can turn it off, honey. There never was a barn down by the river. I made it up. I see. You are gonna give me away? Give me a reason I shouldn't. You didn't say anything about yesterday's Janet Lemare
3: No, I didn't why not anything she could do to shake up those two on the hill
1: was okay with me tommy, tommy lee jones isn't part of the main uh, the, he isn't one of the bad guys he's just mainly in a pickup truck with a dog and keeps almost running into charlie's angels and but he's the only one who sort of knows <laughs> oh that's a fake and what ends up i, I don't want to go too far into it but you kind of learn that kelly is a fake that's a fake out because they're they're going to bring in the angels and Bosley and um, Winchester from um, uh, *Mash*. Are going to bring in the real Janet, who's actually Sabrina with Jill as her, like, secretary. So they're playing, like, a long con where it's, like, um, uh, Kelly's uh, fake, but she got this information from Janet through drugging her and kidnapping her. But this is the real Janet showing up, and what's she gonna want? And It becomes a very... I mean, it's a few years after the sting. It's a long con, sting kind of thing, and they're just trying to get information find the body of Mr. make sure that these two jerks don't get all the property and everything and i'll leave it there because i could really overcomplicate it but that's the basic <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know it is interesting because i don't think the plot is that complicated but you're right there's a lot going on like to explain it but i yeah i think it unfolds really beautifully i think this is a really strong pilot because a lot of pilots aren't very strong and you sometimes wonder how they made it to series or you or you don't wonder because they don't go to series and you mm. you can say well it's because this pilot is so crazy i can't which is happened and i'm thinking of movies like oh, what was the name of the one with Dak rambo where he's like the sword of justice is that what it's called where there's like two Dak rambos and martial arts are involved or something i can't what? even remember it's so crazy that. yeah it's so crazy. and then, then there's what? and then there's another one where joe penny plays like a freaking ninja what's that called and um, there isn't
1: nin- like the last ninja or something like that so there it's is some there tv is
0: pilot movie, movie with joe penny yeah. and he
1: Richard Lynch is in that, isn't? Isn't that is that the one? Maybe where where they take people. Host- Maybe they take people hostage in like a, in, um, like a building, and he has to break into the building and save them. And it's intercut with shots of him learning to be a ninja.
0: Huh. <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's crazy. And then there was like Mandrake. Do you remember Mandrake yes. with Robert yes. Reed? Yeah. And then there's like the Human Duplicator. Like there's a bunch, and like I can't remember ten seconds of them sure, because they're so. Sure convoluted but this one is really point a to point b it's very easy to follow and it's really well done and the pacing is amazing um so but before i get into all of it john had you seen the charlie's angels i haven't
2: and i haven't seen charlie's angels before either I'm just going really? to put it out there. I am, like Dan, wow. I am also not really a Charlie's Angels person, and it's not because I don't like it. I've just never ever got round to it. This show and a lot of them now on Sony Channel here in the UK. So a few of them have popped up and I've watched. I've watched bits and bobs of those episodes, and I really do. I do enjoy it, and I feel like I could actually lose myself in Charlie's Angels one day and watch them all. But this is my first experience of watching a full episode. <laughs>
0: And so tell me what you thought.
2: I enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I thought um, I thought all three actresses were really good, really likeable. Um, I loved that from the get-go, they were really sort of cool, confident. They knew who they were. Um, they weren't like simpering uh, little dolls, which is what sometimes that might be the um, that might be the impression that you might get from not watching it but knowing of right. it. Um they they all they seem quite strong. My only my only drawback was that towards the end, you know, with the bits where they're all in the bull reeds yeah. and all that walkie talkies and they're all they're all in polo necks and it's fabulous. I wanted more of that. <laughs> um, I wanted
0: more turtleneck.
2: Basically, I wanted more yeah, I wanted more of the girls sort of yeah. springing about in action and, and uh, yeah, being yeah. campy um, whereas I, th- I felt like some of this pilot got a bit lost in its plot it was just sort of it dragged out a little bit for me um, however, I did I did enjoy it and it, it has made me more convinced than ever that I should watch the series. Yay,
0: okay Dan <laughs> Dan, what did you think?
1: I, I kind of agree with uh, a lot of what, what John said. And I will also uh, say that, yeah, I I, I know of the series. I, I think maybe I've only watched one episode <gasps> in the past. Um, I know. I know. I, well, there are so many 70 series, and I'm just trying to get to all of them. And it takes time. I'm, I'm Now I'm watching canon. So when sure. I get to the end of canon, I'll get on to Charlie's okay. Angels. Well, that'll
0: be a totally different adventure for you, trust me. Once you get off of canon, yeah, you you don't want to get back oh, on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Kid is a great um, show. Um, I I didn't know what I was expecting from the show, but it's really kind of it's smart. I think it's smartly written. It's well put together. The con that they're playing is very nice because right up until the end, when they're in the swamp, they're they are like one step ahead,
3: yeah. and they
1: don't do a full on sting like thing where like you you keep thinking that the gangster is going to that might be ahead of them but then you get to the end and realize that the gangster was right behind the whole time and they they went out doing their sting this this one does the thing where right near the end there's a bit of we discovered they're they're pulling a trick on us and then guns start going off and people start getting kicked in the groin things like that this was directed by the moxie of course mr moxie and it was written by the guys who wrote white heat which is Ooh. a fantastic screenplay, and one of them was nominated for Academy Award for *The Man with a Thousand Faces*, the Lon Chaney uh, Sr. Cool.
3: biopic. Wow.
1: So, so these are like these are respected, um, sort of Hollywood writers who are apparently yeah. very meticulous writers, and like would take like ages detailing everything before they would start writing. And so, you can sort of see that I think in the screenplay. Uh, but, but there is a bit on that. There is a bit of. Um, you want to see the angel I wanted to see the angels kicking more butt yeah it's it for the first like three quarters of it it really is this this wonderful sting that they're working through but there are a few like um, um, uh, Sabrina and Jill don't really do anything for like the first half of the movie mm. it's it's all basically Kelly they kind of show up in sort of the about like 30 35 minutes into it and and I was, I was kind of surprised that this was a Charlie's Angels thing, because I thought there would be more sort of action and them jumping around and working together.
0: But it's kind of because
1: of the the nature of the sting. It doesn't really work like that. I
0: I might be Able to shed just a little light. So, something that was new to me, and somebody actually contacted mm-hmm. me too to make sure that I mentioned this. And I saw this there's a there's like a Wikipedia, not a Wikipedia like wikipedia.com, but a wiki dedicated just to Charlie's Angels. And I was perusing it and I was looking at their pilot movie, seeing if it had any information on it. And one of the things that they mentioned was that uh, Kate Jackson was originally hired to play Kelly, who would go would end up being played by Jacqueline Smith. And I believe this was a vehicle for Kate Jackson because she had been on the rookies. And, matter of fact, she was still on the rookies when the Charlie's Angels pilot aired and Rookies is an Aaron Spelling show and I think he Mm -hmm. was looking for a vehicle to put her in as a star and something apparently happened right before they went to production and Kate Jackson decided that she'd rather play Sabrina and so I think the way it was originally structured was that it was supposed to be sort of a a showcase for Kate Jackson Mm -hmm. and and it ended up going to Jacqueline Smith who does a fantastic job by the way in the role she's really um yeah she's amazing and we'll talk about my favorite scene here in a second but so what i think when they originally laid it out they wanted to put a spotlight on a certain actress and then things got rearranged okay. so that it makes more sense i think with the context but you're right yes. i was even thinking this is and i've seen this a few times but when i was watching it this past time i was also thinking yeah you know what they really do show up kind of late into it the, the other two angels and that's kind of interesting
1: and and the the moment all three of them are together in the end, it really to me it like it's it's kind of been a it's been a fun sort of uh, journey, but the moment they all are together in the end and they're facing off all the guys with the guns, at that moment it like clicks and you're like, Yeah, here this is it. This oh, this so, yeah. is what I wanted to see. It's this, almost yeah. it's almost like, like an origin story where they bring together like two or three superheroes or something, like that. and then in like the last ten minutes they meet up and do what it is and you're like, Yeah
0: Is that what you did? You went, Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, you're darn right.
0: Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love this movie. Um, I love it. I think so. When I I've been watching The Angels since I was a kid, since it came on TV. You know, all the girls watched it, and we all picked our favorite angels. And at and growing up, I was always a Sabrina, right? Sabrina was the smart one, and whatever. And I always loved Sabrina. Um, and I always thought maybe I she was the angel for me. And then when it came out on DVD, and I watched it the whole five seasons like straight through. I came to realize that Kelly played by Jacqueline Smith is really the angel and it could be possibly because she's the only actress who made it through the entire run of the show. Because the other actresses left, like Farrah Fawcett left after the first season and then Kate Jackson left yeah. after the third season. And and they can never really replace the chemistry of those three girls. Um, even Cheryl Ladd later, I love Cheryl Ladd, but um, it wasn't the same. And then when they came, they brought Shelley Hack, who's a wonderful actress, but I don't know that she was right for Charlie's Angels. And then the last season is actually a really interesting season with Tanya Roberts. And right. it's a really um, underappreciated season because a lot of the episodes were directed by the guy who made The Toolbox Murders. And I think he did. Yeah, I think he did a bunch of them. But the ones in the fifth season really stand out to me. They're really amazing. And some of them are gritty and dark, dark. Wow. And, um, and it's amazing to me that he did those two things. But the thing about uh, Jacqueline Smith, and you see it here in the pilot, is Kelly Garrett is afraid of nothing. There is nothing there's no fear in this woman's heart and you see it throughout the series she delivers babies by herself she lands planes there was this one episode in the first season where she goes to visit um, this uh, girl's boyfriend he's abusive and she goes into his apartment and he basically threatens to punch her and she's like what are you gonna do Are you gonna punch me she's like she calls him on it and he can't do it because he's terrified and that's the kind of character Kelly is and so in retrospect it's perfect. That she ends up doing the first half hour of this because she is the fearless angel to me. She is the one. There's only one episode where I think she breaks that character, and it's a really weird episode later on with like a like a singles club where you sit at a table and there are phones and people call each other on the phones and they flirt oh, on yeah, the phones yeah. and then hook up afterwards. And there's like a I dra- think it's
2: bar like that. Have you really? And and um, niece friends. Oh, so weird. <laughs> Did you get a call? No. Um, I think I was with Ben at the time, my husband. So I think we played a game where he went and stood at one table, and I called him from oh. from my table. <laughs> oh, that's
0: cute. that's cute. Yeah, it's a, it's a really strange episode. Um, you might like that one because there's a drag queen in it too. That's really interesting. It's it's not my favorite episode because it's the one where Kelly breaks yeah. character. But it's an interesting episode. Anyway, um, so so I I love that she kind of got to take the spotlight here because it would turn out she'd be sort of the angel to carry the torch, so to speak, through the entire great. run. She's great.
2: She's great as well. She does carry because yeah. what i do love about her is how much she enjoys toying with the bad guys yes she re- she mm-hmm. really fucking plays with their minds yes yeah she you know she's like she's like a cat with, with like cat, a game of cat and mouse with them i think um what, what i did think was one of the possible flaws to it is that you never ever believed that any of them are in danger because they're so cool from the get-go yeah it yeah. is yeah. true so but that's that's that could be good or bad, really. It's not. It's not necessarily a uh, criticism of the show. But from the beginning, you, you do. I loved the three of them from the, from the get go. And I thought neither of these girls are going to be a victim in any way throughout this. They're, they're going to be one step ahead the whole time. I. So,
0: I love when she's yeah. laying in bed and they brought this poison. And they're like, cause she's oh, like, yeah. I drink warm milk every night with hazelnut or whatever. And they're like, so they're taking mm-hmm. the poison up and Diana Maldare's character's like, are you sure she's not going to smell the poison? And Bo Hopkins, who plays Bo, by the way. And by the way, Bo Hopkins is the <laughs> sexiest thing I've ever seen. I just want to put that out there. He is so hot in this. He's hot on Dynasty. He is hot in Sweet 16.
2: Sweet 16. Uh, he's hot yeah. in
0: Mutant, you know, with Wings Hauser And bored. like... He just I can't
2: Tommy Lee Jones. Oh,
0: Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, I can't. get. Tommy Lee
2: Jones and his double denim.
0: The machismo (laughs) in this movie is too much for for my little weak heart. (laughs) It was just too much. But anyway, he's taking the poison up and then she's like she takes it and then she's laying in bed. They come up. They think she's passed out right from whatever they put in her drink. And she's facing the camera and they're like at her back so they can't see her face. And she's laying there like she's asleep and they walk out and then she opens her eyes and she smiles. And I'm like, these people are trying to kill you. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you're by yourself in the house. Like, the other angels aren't there. And, like, but she doesn't care. She knows she's going to get out of it. And I I just find it so amazing, you know? I love, I just love Kelly. You,
1: You know what just occurred to me when you mentioned the, um... Uh, the uh that she delivered a baby, maybe she flew a plane, all this stuff. And immediately I don't know why, I thought of and, and you said she had no fear, but immediately I thought of like, didn't like Laverne and Shirley do that yes. too? Didn't they? And I I thought it's interesting that like Laverne and Shirley when they like flew a plane, they were terrified, but they still flew that plane. I don't know if there was an episode where they delivered a baby, but I bet there There was. probably was. So- and I bet they did a great so a he, great job of it. So
0: here's the thing: sorry. if I can remember, I'll post it with this. But I I did a, like a photo thing where I merged a picture of uh, Laverne and Shirley with the Charlie's Angels. Oh
2: wow! Because no
0: because those two shows aired at the same time, and and I was both an Angora Deb and an Angel, and so <laughs> like um, I find both particularly Laverne and Kelly to be like two of the most empowering characters on television of the Mm -hmm. seventies. And so it's interesting that you bring that up because Laverne could do anything. She could do anything. And yes, they would freak out and there would be panic and there'd be like hygiene galore, but she did it. You know what (laughs) I mean? And she always like, there's that great episode not to get off topic, but there's this episode where she goes to like a ball with Lenny. Do you remember that? And she slides off the, the ramp, and yeah. she's got on the hoop skirt, and she f- she's really humiliated, right, by everything that's mm-hmm. happened. Because there's all these dignitaries and rich people, and and she goes into the bathroom, and then and then Shirley gives her like a little pep talk, and she comes out, and this like Duke or something comes up to her, and he tells her that she was so dignified the way she handled that, and she was lovely, and he dances with her, and that's how the episode ends. And I just, I just love Laverne because she always dusts herself off after something yes. happens, and she keeps going, and, and it makes her a better person, right? And and so Kelly. Kelly has more of a story arc than the other angels. I wouldn't say she necessarily develops, but she's got that place. She's like the end point to where Laverne is going, for me. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so like, the, mm-hmm. I think they work together very well as like uh, female characters of seventies TV that are very important to young women. But anyway, that got me off topic. Go ahead, Dan.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, that was actually it. If if you wanna if you wanna go to that time period and see two women sort of with uh, who can do anything. Well, I guess you could watch Wonder Woman too. But if you want to see two women who can who aren't superheroes who can do anything, you watch you watch Kelly to see it done without fear, and you watch Laverne to see it done with fear, but still getting done.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're kind of the yin and yang um, characters that I find so interesting. But anyway, um, so yeah, so there's the. They're very confident. And I guess as a child, well, so one of the interesting things about Charlie's Angels, if you watch the run of the series, is that even though there's been a couple of love interests implanted in a couple of episodes, never in the long term, just like one episode here or there. Um they don't really need men in any real way except Charlie obviously cuz he hired them. Um and there's some issues I have with the beginning of it starting it, you know, he tells it as a fairy tale. There were three little girls who went little girls, right, who went to the academy,
3: but I <laughs> saved
0: them from all that. I'm Charlie. Right that in and of itself is a thing. But we're starting it at, at like feminism when it was at its most um What's the word I want to use? There's a lot of tension with it. People didn't fully understand. A yeah. lot of people were against it. And so you can't just like throw it out into the wind and have people necessarily accept it at face value. So yeah. I think that they had to work in sort of the Charlie and the Bosley in there. But Bosley, so here in the in this pilot movie, one of the things we didn't talk about was David Ogensteer's character. Um, who is Scott Woodville, is only in the pilot movie. He's not in the rest of the series. So there were two men uh, okay. yeah, working with yeah. the Angels at the beginning, and that was Bosley, um, played by David Doyle, and then the David Ogden steers character. And then for some reason they revamped it, and they got rid of Woodville, and they kept Bosley, and they changed Bosley. So Bosley's character actually changes quite a bit throughout the series. So here he just wants to be a part of everything. He's, like, desperate to be part of the con, and he gets to be. But by season one, then he becomes sort of like the number cruncher and he's like he's always like oh we haven't budgeted that out guys and I can't do this because and he's always like pulling his hair what's left of his hair out because he can't like get the numbers straight and he's really frustrated but then he develops into almost sort of an equal to them and there's this really great episode I can't remember the name of it but it's the only Bosley centric episode where he feels like his life is like in a holding pattern and so he's like I'm going to go out and have an adventure guys And, and he meets this woman at a restaurant and she drugs him and it turns out that he's she's connected to something that he did, then she needs to kill him or something. And and he has to get saved by the angels. To be fair, any other detective show of the 70s or even into the 80s it would have been a female secretary going out for an adventure and the detective totally, yeah. yeah the male detective yeah. having to save her and here they flipped the script and yeah, and totally it, it was awesome it was awesome and then yeah. there's another one with Barbara Stanwyck where she is the female charlie and she's got three male angels and they all solve a wow. crime together so like they're doing all kinds of stuff with the series but as it, it's yeah. rooted here is basically The format that they're going to follow, except that con thing, to the degree that they do it here. You see it throughout the first season, but they kind of, it lightens up a little. Not that they don't play characters and stuff, but it's not as heavily uh, interwoven, I think, as it is in this pilot movie. Um, This pilot movie feels more like Switch. I don't know if you guys have seen that TV show Switch with Robert Wagner and uh, Eddie Albert. And Eddie Albert. Yeah, Yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? Because that's all about creating a con. Mm Mm-hmm. Because uh, Robert Wagner's character is a con artist. And and so the con was like a big thing in in the early Angels. um, But then it kind of lightens up the con part of it, I think. Uh, Is there anything else we want to talk about? Because I feel like we're bouncing around. And I don't know
2: if I uh, yeah. skipped over anything. <laughs> it's it just, it was just talking about um, when you were talking about that love interests and stuff. I, what I thought at the beginning of this was, oh my god, is Charlie Jill's love interest? Because whenever he speaks, oh, yeah. she seems she seems like so turned on by his, by John Forsythe's voice. And she's like crawling across the <laughs> desk to talk to, to talk to him on the phone and stuff. Like, what the hell's going on? Um, I thought that was quite funny, and I thought it was quite interesting how um, how when. Kelly is being grilled by the family lawyer, and she's really she's she's done her research, and she's really shit hot and she's not going to be she's not going to be brought down. But then when when Tommy Lee Jones batters Isla, she's at it; she completely loses it and and, and trips herself up. Yeah, you
0: know? <laughs> it is Tommy Lee and Jones. And then the
2: same happens with uh, Sabrina as well. You know, the minute that she sees Tommy Lee Jones, she's like she lets she loses she lets the guard drop.
0: Yeah, so the Sabrina character would actually fall in love a lot more than I remembered when. And I went through the season, the show again, when it came out on DVD, she's always, and it's interesting because she was the one that was considered like the smart one and the most autonomous. Yeah. And she's actually the one that falls in love the most. And when she left the show, they married her off, which I thought was really interesting. And she got pregnant mm. or something. And I was like, wow, I don't know, because she had this whole career for herself. Right. And then she gave it all up yeah. to get married and have a kid. And I, I always thought that that was a dig against her for leaving the show. But I'll tell you a little bit about her. Um. Well, she like she
2: named the show, didn't she?
0: She did. So she, that's right. She she, she came yes. up with it. Yeah.
2: That was in yeah, my background. I, yeah, I just I watched some Aaron Spelling interviews today. So oh cool. God, <laughs> I know that. Um, but. <laughs> She comes across to me that that, um, Kate Jackson had the most power of the three women. I don't know if that's true or not, you know, behind the scenes.
0: I think it was originally because she was coming off The Rookies and because she did already have an established relationship with um, Mm. Aaron Spelling. I think Jacqueline Smith had appeared in some Spelling projects, but... Didn't wasn't like they didn't have much of a relationship as far as I know and Farrah Fawcett I think came into play because for a couple reasons one She was in the murder of flight 502 which I believe was an Aaron spelling TV movie And also because she was married to Lee majors, and I think he was a friend and I think uh, I'm doing this off memory I think maybe he was an in for her and Originally when they brought her in they were worried that she wasn't really much of an actress I think she'd done a lot of commercials and they were like well She's really pretty. She has got a lot of presence and she's got good chemistry. So let's cast her, but we're going to give her five lines, right? Like they were literally mm-hmm. going to yeah. give her five lines. And then she yeah. got on there to, into the casting crew and started working on production. And they were like, you know what? She's actually really good. Let's give her okay. some more work. And so her 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 uh, character expanded in the pilot. And it's kind of a testament to Farrah Fawcett's um, talent that for years we had a hard time accepting her in any other role because she we all thought she was like jill monroe right for so long Mm -hmm. and then she came and did extremities and the burning bed and small sacrifices and a bunch of amazing tv movies and then we realized what a good actor she was but she was actually not she was actually not jill so we forget to acknowledge that yeah. she was so good at playing mm-hmm. Jill Monroe yeah. that we thought she was Jill Monroe for like a decade. You know what I mean? And so um, so she really honed her skills on the show. And um, she's, I think, personally, right off the bat, I mean, I don't know what she was like when she auditioned. But between auditioning and coming on the show, I mean, she's to me, she's really magnetic right from the get-go.
2: She's really. She's got she, really yeah. good comic timing as yeah. well. She's really funny when she plays Jillie Lou, the, the swamp girl. Yes, yes. <laughs>
4: yes, yes. Right She's great as a swamp that. girl. Hi.
2: I'm Bo Creel.
4: I know who you are. Mr. Hawkins warned us about you when we bought this place. You, b- you bought it? Yeah, my grandpa and me. Gave Mr. Hawkins what he paid for it, $20,000. Him and his family went back to Arizona.
2: Who is it,
4: Jelly Lou? Calls himself Bo Creel. What's he want? Don't know yet. Well, you see, uh, I'll come here with this very generous business proposition. Trust a man whose teeth don't show when he smiles. When Hawkins saw you this place, I guess he forgot to mention it was worthless. Didn't have to. Any fool could see that. It's mostly swamp. Then why buy it? Oh, uh, you wouldn't understand. Grandpa had always wanted to find the right piece of swamp land where he could live out the rest of his days. Born in a swamp he was, just like me and my ma, in a bayou down by the mouth of the Big Muddy. As far as your eyes could see, it was swampland with tree stumps rotting in the slime. But it weren't ours.
1: And, and she does, and, and it was fun to, to to see that, like, when they're fighting in the swamp in the end, she's the one who's, like, like in the swamp water. That's yeah. right. Like, yeah. she's the one, like, up to her neck in the swamp water with this cute little hat on.
2: She's the Sammy Joe, isn't
0: she? Yeah, she is. Yeah. yeah. Well, she was. She's she, the, Sammy she's Joe. the athlete, quote unquote athletic she, angel. You know, you see her playing tennis at the beginning, she, and she she actually skateboards in an episode, and yeah. and um, she's like she's kind of the daredevil of the three of them. Um,
1: yeah. She she had just been uh, one of the supporting cast. Well, there are very little supporting cast of Harry O which hmm. got canceled right around this time. She, When David Jansen, when Harry moves from San Diego to Los Angeles and moves into like an apartment complex, she's one of the uh, ladies who lives there, and it, they kind of sort of almost date. And I, I, I know that because I'm, I'm re-watching Harry O, and I know that Harry O was canceled right around when Charlie's Angels took off. And uh, David Jansen was pretty much told it was because, well, we don't we do not do that sh- sort of show anymore. That's when Jiggle TV really oh. hit big and he was told yeah we don't we don't do that sort of show anymore and I think it was David Silverman or whoever told him that
0: yeah you know TV really had a really interesting fluctuation in this point we talked about it when we covered the Heriot pilot and so I'll just briefly go over mm-hmm. but like it so Dan of course is the Green Acres Petticoat Junction uh, Beverly Hillbillies expert and he yeah. probably knows more <laughs> about the rural purge than I do but, oh yeah. yeah but so like in the 70s even though those show or late 60s I should say when those shows were we getting really good ratings the um, Nielsen's was able to determine like what portions of the country and what types of audiences were watching these shows and they decided that the audiences for the Petticoat Junction and Beverly Hillbillies they were large audiences, but they weren't the type of audiences that they wanted. They wanted more urbane and whatever oh, people. Yes. And so they canceled all those shows. Those, uh, with the, that's why they called it The Rural Purge, because all these kind of country-based shows were gone.
1: Any Anything oh, nice. with a tree in it. Yeah,
0: anything with a tree, it, that's right. It
2: was greenery. Yeah, it was oh, no. gone.
0: And then they brought in, like, Kojak and these other shows, and so they were these, like, more sophisticated cop shows. But what's really interesting is, between The Rural Purge and The Waltons, which was, like, maybe two years, The Waltons came, and it became, like, the biggest thing that anybody Ever seen on television, and even though it's not Beverly Hillbillies, it was about these people living on a mountain during the Depression, right? And and it turned out that the audiences did want that stuff, and so then we started seeing more heartwarming television come. But then Jiggle TV came afterwards, so we went again from like the sort of innocent television, right? After gritty, we went innocent, gritty, innocent, and then whatever you want to call jiggle tv right and so like it, it just it fluctuated so heavily throughout the 70s and so charlie's angels kind of hit the nail on the head because it came so to speak uh-huh. because it came right at that time <laughs> when we were starting to move into the sexier stuff like with threes company and i guess love boat would be part of that to a degree oh. and um yeah. and so it was it was a really interesting time for tv but what aaron spelling was doing you know obviously was that he was t- injecting feminism into sort of the mainstream consciousness in a way that it was more palpable. I feel like yeah. second wave feminism it, it, at its height in the 70s, early 70s and late 60s was a time full of a lot of tension, right, between the sexes. Yeah. And and so I think the word feminism got a really early connotation attached to it.
2: A bad rap, yeah.
0: It got a bad rap, yeah. And so so shows like this, and there were a lot of TV movies too, really took care of that. From
2: what I can say, talking about this and talking about um, the Old Man Who Cried wolf. Aaron Spellum was really good at hoodwinking you into, into watching something that dealt with issues, but you didn't realise that that was happening until you were halfway through. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and I, I, I said it before, when that my my impression of Charlie's Angels before I watched this was that they would all just be sort of all cardboard cutouts, like little dolls. and um, But within five minutes, I loved all the characters because they, they, they all had their own, they all had balls, you know.
0: Yeah, and they're all unique. Mm-hmm. So one thing I meant mm-hmm. to bring up when we were talking about Jacqueline Smith, one of the I just want to go back. My favorite scene in Charlie's Angels, the pilot film, is when she gets caught. She's not the right Lemaire She's pulling a con, and Diana Mulder mm-hmm. and Bo Hopkins confront her. And there's just this scene. It's like it's like four or five minutes long, where she sits down in a chair, and then Bo mm-hmm. Hopkins sits across from her, and then she keeps the con going, and they go back and forth.
2: Oh, she's so cool. Oh. Yeah.
4: Well, I'll say this, you got some nerve coming back here. Do you really think I'd fall for that warm milk bit? Lawyer named Woodville uh, just dropped by. Said that the real Janet Lemaire would be coming by here tomorrow. She got away? (laughs) Nice try. You know, I'll say this for you, you sure came prepared. But... All I got to do is call a sheriff, and he's going to put you away for a nice long stretch. Fine. That'll give me plenty of time to tell him about the kind of milkshakes you serve around here. Why did you come back? Okay, she got away. No one knows what I look like. It'll still work. What are you after? Half of whatever there is. Half the vineyards. Grapes? Who's talking about grapes? What else is there? That's what I'm here to find out. That
0: scene is everything to me. Nothing happens, you know, it's except some dialogue exchange, but the way it's shot and the way um, Jacqueline Smith portrays Kelly, uh, I just get so engrossed in that scene. I look forward to it every time I watch the pilot. Um, It's just amazing.
2: It's, she switches it's, so so smoothly, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. To a, oh, I am a villain too, kind of thing. She's really it's,
1: good. It's it's nice because nice when I when I watched it, uh, you, when she goes in there and she's um, convincing them that she's Janet, um, up until the moment when Winchester shows up at the door. And um, uh, Scott, sorry, yeah, Scott David Woodville shows that. up at the door, yes, and, and, and begins to sort of say, oh, she's the fake one. The real one is about to show up. And then you, you, I thought I, I didn't know sort of how deep this was going to go. Yeah. And so at first I thought it was just, OK, they've got her there and everyone else is standing by. But I didn't realize they had like a full thing yeah. set up <laughs> and, and everything that's happening up until the very end. Everything that's happening is per their plan. Yeah. Like they even they even know that when they get to the hotel, the real Janet gets to the hotel, they know that like everything's gonna be bugged. So That's they have right. to sort of you know, with these I great, love
2: that like, scene. I love that scene where they're where they're in the room, where they're in the hotel room and they're looking yes. for the bug. I love the bit where um, so the bit where they first turn up to the hotel yes and she's pretending to be the rich bitch, and she it, the whole, she says, I wanted the whole fourth floor of the hotel, and it really, it really reminded me of, the, of Dominique Devereaux's arrival in Dynasty, oh. Dynasty for <laughs> it was the same thing, so she turns up, and she basically says, I, I want two suites, um, I want one room for me, and one room for my clothes, she says, I don't sleep, I don't sleep in my clothes, nor do I sleep with them, uh, and that's what, and you know that's again that's you know Aaron Spelling bringing bringing um a a black woman into that kind of role that's which right. was amazing for for the eighties, um but yeah so so Kate Jackson really reminded me of that in this yeah it's
0: such this. a it's such a great line because he's like you want the entire fourth floor and she's like well there's two yeah. of us
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so funny she plays that part really
0: well yeah it's great and then she's like and then when she goes it's interesting because because the way she plays her getting off the plane and the way she plays her at the mansion um are kind of two different things because when she walks in it's definitely like into the hotel she's like in her furs and everything but then when she gets there she's like i just want the swamp for a bird sanctuary and it's it's like this very noble like thing and i'm like wow yes. really that's like it's like such a switch and then and then we find out that the swamp quote unquote may have like gold or something in it so they have to pull out the body to so that they can um have the swamp will be clear of that their evidence and then they're going to somehow get the swamp land and get rid of janet lemaire so they can have it and they can claim whatever's in the swamp and then that's when jill shows up as like the hillbilly with the perfect teeth and skin
3: yeah. yeah. Holding
0: a shotgun. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. My yeah. daddy told me. And they say like, she's like that. And, then, and David Doyle is sitting in the room and he's the grandpa. What's going on out there?
3: Oh,
1: great. With like a little little sh- sh- shot of whiskey, just yeah. taking a sip. What's going on out there,
0: dog? Yeah, it's so <laughs> oh, good. No, grandpa. And I'm like, they're yeah, still aren't they so still so like sort of near LA? Like I don't know Hillbilly's in
2: even <laughs> yeah, in Wine. It's a California vineyard. Isn't yeah it?
1: Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah the I, clampets didn't have any other relatives move out there so so it yeah
0: be, uh, that would actually come into play in the first official i think it's the first official it's either the first or second episode of charlie's angels when um they become like race car drivers and oh. kelly and dave david doyle bosley they play i think father and daughter and he's like an evangelist and she's his daughter and they have this very hillbilly quality to them but they're like two miles outside of la and you're like, I don't know exactly how they ended up there, but okay. But it was just to add to the charm of the show, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And so, anyway, yeah. it's a great. I loved it, uh, and I think you guys liked it.
2: Oh yes, yeah, yeah. totally, totally. And it Quite did, it, it did wet my appetite for more okay. more angels. And I'm I'm intrigued to see what Tanya Roberts is like in those later seasons because I think she's absolutely terrible in James Bond.
0: You know what? Due to a kill. I hate her in a so due to I'd like a Kill. So i Can I? I'm just. I'm. Yeah. I'm probably going to edit this out. But you know, she spends the entire movie going.
3: James
0: James James Yeah, so yeah, Tanya yeah. Roberts, it might be for another episode. She had a really interesting career, probably not the career she wanted, but she had a really kind of interesting and sad life. And when uh, she okay. did when she did tourist trap which was one of the first things she did Mm -hmm. uh the director of that david schmoller on the commentary i think he talked about how she came in and she worked really hard i think she was right at the beginning of her career and she was really trying to become a good actress which you know i'm not saying she stopped trying at any point i don't think she did but she wasn't she hadn't quite developed her talent yet although she's very good in tourist trap i think and so when she shows up in the fifth season of charlie's angels i think she's still kind of working on things as right. an actress but i really like the character and i really like the fact that she feels like she's putting her heart into it even if i don't think the performances are as good as the performances we're seeing here and i almost mm-hmm. even hate saying that because i don't mm-hmm. want to i don't want to diminish anything about tanya roberts because i really like yeah. her. but but i do think she. this was early on but she's a really interesting character because she's the only one that doesn't come from the police force i think they all start with jobs as cops even um i can't remember shelly hack's character's name but julie was the name of tanya roberts character and i feel like she was like a model or something and somehow she in the in the first episode she's in she gets somehow intertwined into a mystery or something then they bring her along and it's really cute because at the beginning opening credit sequence you you know you see them all doing things that they used to do when they were cops and how hard their life was and then you see her on like a treadmill running with like a gatorade in her hand because they're filming a commercial and she's like, and she's like making this cute face, like I'm so tired, and it's just adorable um i I have a lot of love for Tynda Roberts, but it's an interesting season. I think of all the seasons, it's um aesthetically speaking, it's a really interesting to look at season because it would have been like eighty three eighty four and everything is okay. start it's pre Miami Vice, but it's starting to get that really interesting sheen music video kind of quality oh, okay. to it,
2: yeah, so um Neon it's a, vibes,
0: yeah, it's a pretty neat, it's a pretty neat season, I think,
2: yeah,
0: um. Anyway, did anybody want to add anything to this?
2: I need. I I need to run. Sorry, oh, I need oh, to. I no, need to. No. I need to go. But I'll, I'll quickly just say that um, I. <laughs> um, speaking of the opening, the opening credits. You know that shot where they're coming out of the police academy.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So I've been to the actual police academy in LA because when Ben was staying there, he was living literally around the corner. Um, what. It, it doesn't look it doesn't look like that, but if you ever get there, it serves the best breakfast in LA. <laughs> you, uh,
4: could
2: go, you could actually go there for, for breakfast. Oh, that's amazing! You can eat you, you can you can eat ham and eggs whilst you're listening to the gunfire outside in the, in the gun range. <laughs> that
0: sounds very butch. <laughs> yes, very butch, very butch. Uh,
2: I'm there. But yeah, uh, uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank on. you, Thank you too. Fabulous.
0: And everybody, it's check out Screaming Queens if you haven't heard it yet.
2: Yes. Yes. Do, do. Yeah, yeah, and I look forward to talking more about Aaron Spelling if we can. I yeah, for yeah, yeah. right. sure. Yeah. Yay. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. All right, thank you so Jeff. much. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. Bye.
0: bye. Okay, so let me give you a little background on the Charlie's Angels pilot. Um, it originally aired on March 21st, 1978, on ABC. Uh, it ran against on CBS Kojak and Bronk. I don't know if you remember Bronk with Jack Palance, but that's another 70 show, Dan, you're going to want to check out.
1: I, I, I do remember that because that used to be on Warner Archive Instinct. Yes. I've watched the entirety of Bronx. Oh,
0: great. I've only seen a couple episodes, but man, it's violent, isn't it's it? It's fun.
3: Yeah, it is very violent. Yeah, it was yeah,
0: intense. Yeah, yeah. I liked it. Um, on NBC was an episode of McCloud. Uh, hey. The Charlie's Angels pilot movie did amazing. It um, mm. it ranked um, at number three and four for the season. When I say three and four, I mean its original run came in at number three. The rerun came in at number four. Mm. That's crazy. Um, its original rating was a 30.7 slash 49 um the number one and number two uh tv movies are actually was two parts of a mini series it was helter skelter oh so yeah so that's why that was so popular and then the rerun brought in a 29.3 slash 47 that rerun was on september 14th 1978 that's just amazing to me um yeah the the pilot went into production in july of 75 so the year before um it originally aired The series was rejected twice before it was greenlit. So they kept trying to push it and people thought it was a really bad idea for some reason. Uh, But I think it came out at just the right time. So maybe it was right that it didn't happen the first couple of times. Kate Jackson was hired to play Kelly Garrett originally, as we mentioned earlier, but then, of course, decided um, she she wanted to play Sabrina. And so that's why we saw her more. uh, That's why we see... Jacqueline Smith more prominently featured in the first third of the film. Kate was still on The Rookies, as I said earlier, um, but she thought she was going to hopefully do both series at the same time, but The Rookies was actually canceled one month after the TV movie for Charlie's Angels mm-hmm. premiered, so that was good timing in that way. Um, it was actually intended to be a mid-season replacement series, uh, but I think the pilot did so well they probably moved it up. So other potential pilot TV films that season, just to give you an idea of what was happening this year, this really interested me. So in the, in the category of hour-long dramas, ABC was backing a pilot starring Yafet Kodo as a black urban detective named Crunch, a character taken from the movie Report to the Commissioner, which had been released two years prior. So, have you seen Report to the Commissioner? No, I haven't. It's amazing. It's got Michael Moriarty oh, in man. it and Susan Blakely, and I had no idea that it was even up for some kind of pilot spinoff.
3: Uh-huh. But
0: I, and I can't imagine it spinning off into a series, the way the film plays out. But I thought that was really fascinating, and I would I'd love to see that. I don't know if it actually... Was produced. I'd have to look that up. And then, of course, Charlie's Angels, which um, the newspapers called a tongue in cheek drama about three women, private eyes, and their boss. Mm. And then there was something called The Quins, which was an hour long drama dealing with three generations of family fire, a family of firemen. So we have a pretty wide spectrum here of kind of pilots that they were sampling um, for this season. The pilot was actually pushed back from its original air date, which was earlier in March, because Rich Man Poor Man was being extended to a special Monday night movie telecast. And so it ended up preempting the original uh, time slot for. Charlie's Angels now I was I was confused by this I, I didn't know if they meant that they were putting in a new episode of Rich Man Poor Man or if they were doubling up that night or they were rerun mm. like I couldn't figure out why but anyway I got pushed back so in Spelling's book, he said that he'd been advised that no woman could quote unquote carry an hour long show. And he'd been sort of working on this idea for a while, uh, with something like Honey West, which was only half hour long. Oh sure. But it had a female, pretty strong female lead in it, right? So but he said that Honey West failed because the network just didn't know what to do with it. Um other shows um, would try this as well, but it would be Police Woman in 1975 where he could see changes beginning. Now, he didn't have anything to do with that show, but this is where I think we we could see women being incorporated into these types of series and carrying them. But then, for Spelling, he, when he looked at Police Woman, he thought it was interesting because he felt like that, as much as it was Angie Dickinson's show, it was also Earl Holliman's show. So he wanted Ooh, Charlie's Angels okay. to be unique and to have the women be more separate from the men and stand out more and be more autonomous, I think. So Uh, While developing the series, the first go was something he called the Alley Cats. That was the series that was turned down. And so as John said earlier it was Kate Jackson who suggested the name of angels. So they, they took care of Valley They revamped it and they were like, we don't like the title. And so she said, she just suggested the word angels. So originally Charlie was supposed to be named Harry and the series was to be called Harry's angels. I don't think that was right at all. So I'm really glad they went <laughs> no. with Charlie. Um, it works better for me. Uh, and, and yeah. I'm repeating a lot of this stuff. So fair was only given five lines, but Aaron really liked her. So he expanded her character. Um, but speaking of uh, Kate Jackson's reputation, um, he said that her bad reputation was unjustified. He said that it was simply that she was just a strong person. He called her young Barbara Stanwyck in his book. And that she always spoke her mind, but she never she was never unprofessional. Like She wouldn't threaten to walk off the set if she didn't get her way or anything like that. But she had definite mm-hmm. ideas of what she wanted. And that he, Swelling, said that he really took a liking to her... And, um, and he also wanted to note that there was no jealousy between the three actresses when Farrah took off into stardom. And that's actually very true. They stayed very close until Farrah Fawcett died, the, um, the three of them in particular. Now, when uh, Cheryl Ladd showed up, there was some tension, I think, between her and Kate Jackson. But the original three uh, women, the reason why I think their rapport is so good is because they were genuinely very close. Uh, when the series started Uh spelling said the series was the greatest success of his career despite some negative reviews uh tom shales of the washington post hated it he said it was indefensible variety called it chauvinistic and that was really all the reviews i could find of it Hmm. but uh, i think the show has definitely stood the test of time i think of all the aaron spelling shows it's the one that's probably been rebooted the most it's the one that everybody keeps oh, sure. trying to capture lightning in a bottle again with movies and TV, different TV shows. And nobody's ever been able to really duplicate it in the same way. And so I think for all the criticism it got when it originally aired, there was something there that was really important. And it's a testament to how good the show really was and, and what it was trying to do, right, with these female leads. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, anything you want to add?
1: Oh, I was going to say, and you bring the moxie in to direct.
0: Oh, forget yeah. it.
1: You're gonna have good there I did notice there there are a few moments in it where um I'm wondering if uh, uh, most of the budget went towards like the several nights of shooting they would have had to done do in the swamp because there there are a few moments like like Tommy Lee Jones's first two scenes are basically kind of shot almost the exact same way at the exact same place. Yeah. You know it's sort of like okay Tommy get in the truck with the dog uh bring you know bring Jacqueline in. Okay, Jacqueline, you take five let's bring Kate in. Get back <laughs> in the car with the dog Tommy. Let's do it. Kelly pulls up for the first time in front of the house you see her on the motorcycle she pulls up two guys come down these steps and it cuts like a shot um not quite over her shoulder but sort of like looking at the two guys standing in front of the steps and then it cuts to a reverse shot of her and she's like standing in front of a very unconvincing backdrop oh i love
3: that
1: (laughs) there are a few moments in it where and even like the the when they're in the huge mansion it's clearly a just a beautiful set you know there's nothing Never did I think we're really in a mansion. It it was South Fork looks more realistic than the interior of of that place. But not that not 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 in a bad way no. for any of this. But it's 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 funny that I uh, when I I was watching I thought. A couple of moments of this look a little chintzy, but then when they hit the swamp stuff, I was like, they probably spent a ton of money doing like two or three night shoots
0: yeah. and yeah. having
1: Farrah Fawcett swim around in yeah. a swamp and all this other stuff. So it, it's worth it. It's worth it.
0: So when she shows up, uh, Jacqueline Smith, when she first shows up on the motorcycle and in that scene where she, when she meets the people who are living in the mansion, there's that great scene where she takes off her helmet and her hair cascades down mm-hmm. her back. And yes. it's hilarious yeah. because um, I have really long, Semi-thick hair, and my boss tells me I have Jacqueline Smith hair. And there's actually a gif of her <laughs> taking off her helmet, and then the hair just oh. cascading down her back. And that's how I envision myself every day.
1: <laughs> yes. Just so you know, that's that's, that's how I describe
0: you. To yeah. Folks, thank you. Uh,
3: Whatever. I want everybody to describe
0: out. me that way. Yeah. That I'm that I'm a <laughs> Kelly Garrett type. I would be. Forever grateful to anybody to do that for me, but um. Anyway, so that's Charlie's Angels. Um, we only yeah. got a little bit of feedback on Aaron Spelling. Um, and that's partially my fault. I, we we were gone for a long time, and I'm not very good at like promoting these shows before we air them or put them online. Air them before we put them online, and so. <laughs> And so, but we did get a couple of responses. Um, Matthew on Facebook wrote, we need the Aaron Spelling Film and TV Library released on Blu-ray. Seems like a no-brainer that these high-quality productions shot on film would look amazing in the high-def format and and sell like hotcakes. The Charlie's Angels Complete Series Blu-ray box was a revelation. Bring them on. So I think, and and this is just a guesstimate on my part, I think part of the reason that we don't see a, a huge amount of Aaron Spelling stuff available is because he co-produced a lot of things. And i it's my understanding that Leonard Goldberg owned the rights to a lot of his TV movies. And that's why they're not okay. available because he hasn't made them available in like a home video format, at least at a price that people can afford. And because I know this because um, I was asking around about This House Possessed and somebody actually tried to acquire the rights to it. And I think Leonard Goldberg had been asking for like an astronomical amount of money. And so I think the rights are weird and also leonard goldberg just passed away and so i don't know if his estate is going to get the rights to them but if they do maybe those tv movies will come out i don't know i guess they might because did maybe he go ahead
1: maybe he left the maybe he left the rights to you call someone yeah find out what's going on that would have been the great, greatest be great? will
0: reading ever right they just show up you know leonard goldberg has left you something in his will can you please be in la on like may 10th or whatever and then i like fly in be
1: ready to cascade yeah my hair
0: done (laughs) very kelly garrett walking in and then they tell me that i've inherited the rights to all the leonard goldberg aaron spelling tv movie productions yeah that's a dream (laughs) that's a dream so anyway but i think leonard goldberg and aaron spelling co-produced Nightmare in Badham County, and that did come out on Blu-ray. So maybe... Maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm guesstimating all of this, so don't take it as the word of God or anything. I'm just... But I think that was the hold-up with some of his TV movies, and so maybe that's going to change. I don't know, but I think that's part of the holdup. Anyway. So another man on Facebook said, um, This man, along with Glenn A. Larson, is basically my childhood. I always know I'm in for a great time when I see those words in and I'm sorry. and Aaron Spelling production, across the screen. Yes. So, um, yes, and so that's our Aaron Spelling episode. Unless you have anything else you wanted to add, Dan?
1: No, nope, that was it. I, I will get to Charlie's Angels eventually. I'm I'm on season four of Canon. So as soon as I'm done, okay.
0: I
3: will get to Charlie's <laughs> Angels.
0: Well, and also I think, we'll, I mean, we've talked about several Aaron Spelling TV movies on here already. And I kind of feel like we'll probably do mm-hmm. another double at some point because it's inevitable. He made oh, like yeah. 140 at least TV movies. Most of them are worth talking about so so we'll probably do another double and we can talk about some other stuff he's done and maybe at that point you've seen charlie's angels and we can talk a little bit more about that series yeah yeah because it's really good it really is (laughs) it's hard to it's hard to binge watch it though because every episode's like the episode before it and i don't have a problem with that but but you know in a weekly format it's more palpable because you you know Mm -hmm. you've had seven days To like let the other episodes sink in and then you watch it. But when you marathon them, like I can watch two or three in a row, but it's not like Stranger Things or all these shows with like these really overreaching character arcs. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. The serialized. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: think a lot of 70s TV binge watching has kind of hampered it because I find that people who are now accustomed to binge watching when they kind of go back to watch older TV shows. They expect to sit there in one sitting and watch 24 hours of Kolchak. But y- you know what? They're all the same yes. episode, right? And, yeah. and that's not a bad thing, but you know, you're going to, after the third episode, you're going to be like, wow, I just saw that.
1: Yeah. You usually what I do with like, like right now I'm rewatching Harry O and the Rockford files. Cause I got Rockford on Blu-ray Yeah. and I just do one episode a day. I just, of each that's it. I just I just do one a day. And some sometimes I'm I'm tempted to do a, a second one, but I find it's better if I just do one a day and carry on.
0: Yeah, I do. I can do like two or three Charlie's Angels, but I can't do like, I'm not going to sit here and just be like, I'm going to watch a whole season in like a week. I just, I'll watch two or three <laughs> and then sometime I'll pass and then I'll watch two or three. Or um, what I like to do actually is, is like if something really bad has happened in my life or I'm having a really hard mm-hmm. time with something, I will watch like eight Charlie's Angels at night. Um, and then I'll go through Mm. the whole season that way, but usually I just watch two or three and then like some time will pass and I'll watch another two or three, you know?
3: Yes. Yeah.
0: I just, that's just how they should be watched. But anyway, it's a great show. And I hope if you haven't seen it, um, anybody listening, you go seek it out, especially the pilot. I think it's a really strong pilot. Um, and so now we're at the part where we tell you what's going on next month, but I don't know yet. So... Mm. I will, <laughs> I will let you know, and um, you can send us any feedback about this show or any um, other shows we've done or anything about TV movies that you want to talk about by contacting us either on our Instagram, which is at Made for TV Mayhem. You can find us at Twitter on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. Or you can email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. I don't really have too much to promote. I did do something, but it hasn't been announced yet. And I'll be excited to tell everybody about it in a couple months. Um, I did, however, uh, provide the liner notes for a release of The Last Starfighter, which is coming out through Arrow in October. Yay! Yay. And that was really fun for me because because that's a childhood favorite of mine. And I was really happy to be involved in this release. And um, Mike White from the Rejection Booth is doing the commentary. And there's going to be all kinds of neat extras on it, so everybody should pick that up in October. But otherwise, I've just been sort of working on my own little side projects, um, trying to get some stuff going, and um, hopefully getting back into podcasting. I did a trap cast recently, so I did that, and that's it. Dan, yeah. Dan what are you cool, doing? Cool.
1: Uh, well, eventually, Super Train is still going. We are. Um, I am currently editing episode 93, and it's um, Tim Turner and myself talking Nero Wolf, which is actually – Executive, it's near Wolf, William Conrad and Lee Horsley. It's actually executive produced by Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, oh. who wrote Charlie and I think created, at least wrote Charlie's Angels. Yeah. Um, uh, and then uh, the great Kristen Hawes, Kiki writes and myself are still discussing Auto Man. And I am finishing up my discussion of Shazer. And I get close to episode 100, which is fun. I don't really have anything planned because I always forget these things are coming. And and then suddenly it's here. And I shout hooray at the beginning of the episode and then at the end. You should do a Um, clip show. But I just, oh my gosh, that would be fantastic. Oh my gosh. And it would just be mainly you and I talking Joni Love's Shot Masquerade. (laughs) That would be fantastic. And then uh, I just finished another minute by minute podcast, Pieces in Pieces. Uh, Went all the way through Pieces. That was lots of fun. And um, rocking all week with you, my Happy Days podcast. I just posted an episode discussing Crack Magazine and their love for the Fonz in 1976. And I will begin episode uh, season four show sometime in, well, uh, September of 2020, uh, episode one, which will cover Fonzie Loves Pinky, um, oh, part one. Cool. Uh, so that's uh, – yeah, that's what's going on there. And you'll know, still writing, still finish, finishing up my uh, Henning Verse book, which will – Hopefully it will be published soon. Fingers crossed.
0: Yay. Okay. I'm sure it will be. I have every faith in that. Yeah. Um, And also just want to briefly mention, I know John mentioned it earlier, but if you want to hear John and I talk about someone's watching me, you can find that on his screaming Queens podcast. And I'll put a little link to that on the site there. um, So people can find it. Uh, That was a lot of fun for me. I'm trying to think if I've done it. I did a lot over the summer in terms of other people's podcasts Um, I was on Newton Talks, which is by my friend James Newton, where he just interviewed me, we talked about TV movies. He watched a really eclectic group of TV movies. I think originally um because he didn't have a whole lot of background on tv movies and i think originally mm-hmm. i was like well dark knight of scarecrow is a good one and then i forgot i recommended it and then we ended up watching like fantasies Police Woman, centerfold and the rape of richard Beck. oh wow yeah That's it was a, and i think he chose mix, yeah. wow. i think he chose most of those um i think fantasies he just picked mm-hmm. because he knew i liked it a lot and he wanted to see it but um so it was kind of interesting and it, it was a really interesting way to look at tv movies because those are so diverse right? And everything, everything about them is so unique from the other ones. So that was really fun. Um, I was also on Austin film Society's, Uh, I think it's called viewfinder podcast with Lars Nielsen. That was really fun. I also did journey of an Aesthete with uh, my friend, Mitch Hampton. Um, that was another interview episode uh, where we talked a lot about TV movies. I'm trying to remember if I've done anything else. Um, that I was, it was much easier for me to go on other people's shows than to do my own because I was having a hard time with the (laughs) pandemic. Just a lot happened this summer. And so Mm
2: -hmm. um, it was
0: so much easier when somebody else kind of just brought me on and I answered questions. You know what I mean? I was just, so thank you for everybody who reached out. Um, I guess we can announce the mini-sode, because we're going to record it here in like 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I haven't told anybody who I actually interviewed, um, but I interviewed the guy who created a direct-to-video series that did play on Canadian television called Shades of Love. There are 16 episodes, quote-unquote episodes, in the series. They're all TV movies. They're all like 70-something minutes long, feature length. They're all separate from one another. Love stories, like kind of like romance theater, but a little bit shorter and a little bit more cohesive in that way. And, um, and he gave me the entire history of this really unique, oddball, wonderful, amazing series. And so... Um, I'm going to put the interview out for everybody to listen to. And also Dan and I are going to have a mini discussion about two of the episodes. And so that's a mini. episode that's coming here in a couple weeks. So keep an eye out for that. And that's it. So thank you guys so much. I'll let you know when all I right. decided what the next episode is going to be. And yes, um, please. And we'll be here. So we'll see you all soon. Thanks.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <Bye-bye>. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.